The following podcast is not meant for children or for liberals, even though that's pretty much the same thing these days. But that's what we're here for. Somebody's got to keep these brats in line. Anyway, you've been warned. It's the right opinion. These days, our media's either incompetent or malevolent. They don't believe in heaven, but they acting like they haven't sent. Knowing the truth is way harder than telling it. We gotta work harder, gotta be more intelligent. Sometimes we just gotta grab a mic and start yelling shit. We're living in times when it's hard to stay relevant. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the, the elephant, elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Welcome back right here to the right opinion.podbean.com. Yes, it's the right opinion podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Bergeron. You can follow us on Podbean, on Stitcher, on Google Play, on iTunes, and other places as well. Also, don't forget hackerhameen.podbean.com and ratsaladreview.com. I throw those out there every so often and forget to actually explain what they are. So, hackerhameen.podbean.com. It's a. Uh, wide variety of different shows over there. You've got conspiracy theories, you've got professional wrestling, pop culture, including Star Wars and South Park more specifically. There's a film review podcast. There's, I mean, just so much stuff going on over at hackerhameen.podbean.com. So check it out. They also have the temerity and the gumption, the testicular fortitude, if you will, to carry this podcast. And for that, I think think they're worthy of a little thanks, at least to subscribe. I mean, look, you don't have to listen, but Hook them up on the metrics anyway. Uh, Hackerhumming.podbean.com, also RatSaladReview.com, another podcast with the uh, with the with the the gumption, the audacity, if you will, to uh, to carry the right opinion. So check them out. They do rock and roll and uh, and and heavy metal review shows and all sorts of stuff along those lines, as well as some other shows. They got like a mixed martial arts show. They have the right opinion. They have a South Park show. I believe it's, yeah, it's the same South Park show over at hackerhameen.podbean.com. It's a big network of happy families and whatnot. So uh, check us out at all of those platforms, the the right opinion.podbean.com, hackerhameen.podbean.com, and ratsaladreview.com. And last but not least, the social medias. Check me out on Twitter, on Parler, on Instagram, and on Minds at rightopinionpod. It's very simple. And that's about it. So that's the intros as far as that goes. We're back talking part two of the Michael Flynn saga. We've got so much more to talk about. It's ridiculous. So let me dive right back in with a quick reminder of where we kind of left off here. Are the statements that Michael Flynn made that were considered to be false by the FBI? On or about December 29, 2016, Flynn did not ask the government of Russia's ambassador to the United States to refrain from escalating the situation in response to sanctions that the United States had imposed against Russia that same day. And Flynn did not recall the Russian ambassador subsequently telling him that Russia had chosen to moderate its response to those sanctions as a result of his request, end quote. Now, we've debunked this one entirely in the first part But just to surmise, first and foremost, Flynn was never actually asked about sanctions. Second of all, the lie, if it was a lie at all, was not material to any real legitimate case because the actual case against them was illegitimate. But even for the sake of argument, if you want to make the claim that it was, it's still immaterial to the case because they supposedly had the actual transcript of the call, had analyzed it, determined nothing was wrong with it, and were about to close the case 
shortly, almost a week after this call took place. So none of that really matters. At the end of the day, they charged him with lying to the FBI for that statement. Another statement that they they uh, they said was a lie on behalf of General Flynn, and I quote, On or about December 22, 2016, Flynn did not ask the Russian ambassador to delay the vote on or defeat a pending United Nations Security Council resolution and that the Russian ambassador subsequently never described to Flynn Russia's response to his request. Again, immaterial to any actual investigation because they were investigating Flynn going back to August 16th, 2016, from what we know of, because that's when they officially opened up the case against Flynn, less than a week after they opened up the case against Page, Papadopoulos, and Manafort, because there was a, a dossier memo that came in that was, weirdly enough, dated the same day of the original meeting that they had to open up the case about Papadopoulos and Page and Manafort. They mysteriously, less than a week later, this memo appears that has the August 10th date on it saying that Flynn had all of these contacts with Russians and yada, yada, yada. They open up a case against Flynn. So going back to August 16th, 2016, they're investigating General Flynn. They're listening to all of his calls, apparently, towards the end of it anyway. They're going through all this investigatory research. They're, they're checking all their databases through all their intelligence agencies. They're checking confidential human sources that they have out in a variety of fields. They've got absolutely nothing on January 4th when they draft the document to say that we've investigated. There's no further investigatory methods uh, warranted at this time. If we have any additional information that pops up later, we can reopen the case. Problem is, is that the the information that they use that, quote, popped up later didn't pop up later. They had already had it and determined there was nothing wrong with it, including this December 22nd phone call that they're talking about regarding the United Nations resolution, as well as the infamous call on December 29th, where he supposedly lied about talking about sanctions, which according to even the edited version of the FBI's 302 document, basically memorializing the interview itself, never mentioned sanctions being asked about from the FBI agents. So if he was never asked about sanctions, he was asked about, or at least he talked about escalations or people being declared persona non grata. Those are two totally separate punishments that may have very well fallen under an umbrella under which the sanctions also resided, but by no means did the sanctions themselves define the sum of those punishments. It was a totally separate thing. Sanctions, expulsions, persona non grata. Boom, 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 one, two, three. Those are the different punishments that were levied by Barack Obama that day, conveniently enough, while General Flynn was in the Dominican Republic, and conveniently enough, his government-issued BlackBerry wasn't working, so he had to take a call on an unsecured line from the Dominican, from the Russian ambassador, who the Obama administration knew would call Flynn in response to the sanctions, the expulsions, and the declarations of persona non grata. Think we're all caught up from there? Yeah, anyway, so also important to note is that in the interview, just to recap a little bit, in the actual interview that took place with General Flynn and Peter Strzok of the FBI and Joe Pianca of the FBI, Strzok was the one leading the, the interview. He was the one asking a majority of the questions. Pianca was the one dictating all of this down in what would ultimately amount to being the 302 document that I mentioned before, which is meant to memorialize that particular interview in the most current and contemporaneous manner possible. The FBI says you need to d deliver this document 
after an interview within five business days, five working days of the interview itself. And this one wasn't turned in until 22 days later after being not only revised by a different agent that wrote the original to begin with, which was almost definitely Joseph Pianca, who has completely disappeared off the face of the earth, by the way. Um, and, and so it struck after altering the 302 document multiple times, still never actually mentioned sanctions in all of it, yet Flynn was charged with with lying to the FBI about sanctions that he was never actually asked about. All of this cooked up, by the way, by the upper echelons of the intelligence community and even the president of the United States at the time, Barack Obama, all of which conspired to keep the initial investigation open based on information that they already had that they declared to be innocent, basically. It was it was just, you know, the, these phone calls were nothing. We looked at them. No big deal. We're going to close the case because we have nothing on Flynn after looking at him for f- almost five months at this point. Then Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Rice, Yates, and Obama himself all decide to uh, to get themselves in this Logan Act violation, and they all commit to this. They, they dive headfirst into the stupidest potential prosecution in the history of the government where they were going to claim that the incoming national security advisor was violating a law that not only no one has ever technically violated ever in accordance to the courts, but was probably unconstitutional to begin with and is even less applicable when you're considering the fact that the incoming national security advisor deals on behalf of the American government in terms of foreign relations throughout every transition of every presidency, certainly in the modern era. So the nonsense that he was violating the Logan Act, which would be to be negotiating on behalf of the United States unlawfully, which is unlawful unto itself because it does technically violate your First Amendment rights in, in a certain respect. John Kerry has physically gone over to Iran and tried to talk to them about foreign policy relating to the Iran deal, which the Trump administration eventually revoked. And that would be, by the letter of the law, a actual violation of the Logan Act. No one seems to be interested in it because the Logan Act is a joke, yet they used it as the precipice for apparently spying on a three-star general and a former head of one of our intelligence agencies and the incoming national security advisor, And then in the interview itself, they did everything in their power to put him at ease, to tell him he doesn't need counsel. They subverted the White House counsel altogether. They never at any point in time make make him aware or warn him of the possibility of violating U.S. Criminal Code 1001 because he was never under the impression that he was under investigation or, for that matter, he was being interrogated. This was all presented as just a casual conversation between a couple FBI agents who had questions about a call that they themselves had already determined to not be a big deal, that there was no illicit part of that conversation and whatsoever. They were about to close the case. They had even leaked to the Washington Post that FBI sources claimed that they looked at the call and that there was nothing wrong with it. Sure enough, that headline hit the Washington Post the day before the interview. The media were as complicit in this as any of Comey's cronies underneath him struck Page and whoever the fuck else you want to consider uh, as a part of this scheme. There is some question about Joe Pianca at this point in time. So Joe Pianca, as I mentioned, is the other guy that was in the interview. He has completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, could that be because the FBI is hiding him? Because if he comes forward or is subpoenaed 
or is interrogated in any way about this, he's going to spill the beans about what actually happened in that interview, as opposed to the cockamamie version that we got from Peter Strzok after multiple edits, not only from himself, but also with some input from his girlfriend slash FBI village bicycle, Lisa Page. Or, on the other end of things, maybe Pianca's already complying with investigations. Maybe Pianca's already singing and that's why Christopher Ray's hiding him. And that's why we're not hearing a lot about him from Barr or from Durham even. It's that he's already in. He's already given He's already given up the game. And uh, it's just a matter of time before it all comes crashing down. And it hurts inside for the deep state. Possible. Not likely in my opinion, but possible. Because if he was singing already, I think all of this would have hit by now. Personally. That's just me. This is, after all, an opinion show. It's the right opinion. But it's an opinion. Anyway, let's get into the meat of the matter. General Michael Flynn, part two, the legal saga. Uh, it begins where we left off in February of 2017. This is actually maybe kind of bunny hopping a little bit. We're kind of taking a couple steps back just to take a few steps forward. But nevertheless, stick with me here in February of 2017. The FBI interviews Christopher Steele's primary subsource and discovers that Steele was full of shit. He completely made up the contents of the memos and the dossier, or it was Russian disinformation given to him by Russian intelligence officers who knew what he was up to, which was trying to gather information against Donald Trump for Hillary Clinton. And if the FBI, if you're, you know, you're Boris over there in Russia or whatever, or let's use the actual name, if you're Trubnikov or Surkov, who were the high-ranking Russian intelligence operatives that uh, were actually named by Christopher Steele in an interview with the State State Department. Uh, The State Department's Kathleen Kavalek wrote in her notes, sources, Tribnikov, Surkov, and those were, in fact, the sources that Steele told her were, you know, the the, the sources behind all the information in the dossiers, or at least some of the primary subsources that happen to be in the dossiers. Nevertheless, um, he actually talked to actual Russian intelligence officers and, like I said, either completely made up what they said or they knew that he was going to hand this information back to Hillary Clinton, who obviously had friends in the White House, and that by providing them with everything they wanted to hear about Donald Trump, they could sow the type of chaos that we've seen play out over the last four years here in the United States in regards to Trump-Russian collusion and all of the ensuing chaos that has happened ever since. As recently reported by John Solomon on justthenews.com, and I quote, More recently, these classified footnotes made clear that Steele's claim that Page met back in 2016 with a senior Russian named Igor Sechin and had been offered a lucrative finder's fee had been debunked by the FBI by February of 2017, months before Mueller was appointed. In fact, Steele's own source challenged the veracity of the information attributed to him inside the dossier. And I quote within the quote, the primary subsource told the FBI that one of his, her subsources furnished information for that part of Report 134 through a text message, but said that the subsource never stated that Sechin had off- offered a brokerage interest to Page, end quote, Horowitz reported. Then further on in the quote, within a quote, and I quote, the primary subsource also told the FBI at these interviews that the subsource who provided the information about Page, the Carter Page Sechin meeting, had connections to Russian intelligence services, RIS, end quote, he said, end quote. 
with outside the quotes. We are now done with all the quotes. That's from a report from justinnews.com. Headline, Rosenstein memo tasked Mueller to investigate already discredited steel allegations. So this is one of the many times that an interview had been conducted with one of Steele's sources, and they had either debunked the claims or they determined through other means that those subsources were invalid or that that information was invalid. For instance, just a few off the top of my head, one of the things that they said was that the there was a Russian consulate, the Steele wrote in this report, he said there was a Russian consulate in Miami through which Michael Cohen was going down and paying, you know, these people for all of their involvement in all this Russian collusion. Turns out there isn't even a Russian consulate in Miami. They also said that Michael Cohen traveled to Prague to do something similar, or maybe I'm getting the stories backwards. Nevertheless, it spoke of a Russian consulate in the dossier, which doesn't exist. It also spoke of a Michael Cohen trip to Prague, which never happened, according to his travel records and according to virtually every conceivable piece of evidence that was gathered on the subject. So these are just small examples, but also when you're asking the witnesses uh, or the sources that Steele spoke to that supposedly provided him with information about Page, about Flynn, about Manafort, about Papadopoulos, turns out none of it was true. And when we look back on all this sort of stuff, we've now got Flynn, who unequivocally was set up here by the FBI based on a fake, ridiculous Logan Act charge. You've got Manafort, who faced charges that were ultimately unrelated to the Russian collusion, but he got sucked up into the Russian collusion, which chose, you know, which led them down other investigatory paths that ultimately nailed him for FARA violations, if I'm not mistaken. But all of that was based on a black ledger that was obtained through the Ukraine, which wasn't real. So, You've got at least two of the pillars here of this whole investigation that they were being investigated based on complete poppycock, for lack of a better term at the moment. That, and I like to say the word poppycock, but that's, uh, that's you know, just a, a, t a little bit of a teaser as to what's to come when ultimately a lot of this information gets unfurled, gets declassified, or for that matter, gets read, you know, in like page 1800 of a 3,000 page document. Eventually, you know, people start flipping through these things, and they're like, oh, wait a second, this footnote here sort of debunks the whole story, and instead of it being the headline, it's a footnote, which is conspicuous unto itself, which just tells you about the shady nature of the Mueller report, which wasn't drafted in all likelihood by Robert Mueller, but by his staff, who is headed by Andrew Weissman, who just so happens to not only be a radical liberal, but has also been open about it to the point to where he probably shouldn't have been involved in the investigation to begin with, and now is currently doing fundraisers for Joe Biden. Seriously, you can't make this stuff up. So February 13th of 2017, Flynn resigns from his position as the National Security Advisor. The resignation came as he was accused of misleading Vice President Pence and other senior White House officials about those same communications with Kislyak. Pence, after being briefed by Flynn, had said in television interviews that Flynn did not discuss sanctions with the ambassador. Sanctions, which again, he was never actually asked about. So here's what's happened there. Everyone's talking about, even now, oh, well, Flynn not only lied to the FBI, he lied to, he lied to uh, Pence as well. Did he? Because the FBI probably went to Pence and was like, hey, you know what, he was probably talking about these sanctions. Or, for that matter, it was just a casual conversation where Flynn was like, hey, uh, you know, I talked to Kislyak, yada, yada, yada. Maybe Pence asked him if he talked about sanctions, which wouldn't be illegal even if he had for the 14,000th time. 
And Flynn said, no, it wasn't talked about sanctions. Then somebody in the FBI briefs Pence and says, hey, he was talking about sanctions, which is their interpretation of what they were talking about, but never actually the truth. Because again, the FBI agents in question, Pianca and Stroke, who interviewed Flynn, never asked him about sanctions. So Flynn is saying, I never talked about sanctions. He's saying it to the FBI. He's saying it to Pence because it's true. He never talked about sanctions, even in the, the, the clips that we have from the conversation with Kislyak and Flynn. We can, we can see that he never talked about sanctions. And in the little bit that we know from the 302, we, don't, you know, we know that he never talked about sanctions with the FBI agents. But the FBI agents are in, intent on pretending that he never, he denied talking about sanctions that they never asked him about. They tell Pence that, and they say, look, we have, you know, we have evidence that he talked about sanctions. He told us that he uh, talked about sanctions, or he, he told us he didn't talk about sanctions either. Either way, it's just the FBI's interpretation of what they're claiming sanctions are, even though the word sanctions never actually comes up. So they've convinced Pence at this point that he's lied to them. He still hasn't lied to either the FBI or Pence. I hope I didn't get too lengthy in that explanation there. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Michael Flynn, an honest, upstanding citizen, everybody else in this story is a corrupt piece of shit. Speaking of... May 17, 2017, Robert Mueller is appointed as the special counsel to lead the investigation into Russian interference in our presidential election from 2016. Two days later, Strzok and Page, texting back and, back and forth to one another, Strzok to Page says, there's no big there there, referring to the Russian investigation as confirmed under oath by Lisa Page. They, these are the people that are at the center of all this. They're pushing all the buttons. They're making all the game moves. And they know, as is stated in their own private conversations, there is no big there there. So they're preparing themselves for, okay, Mueller's going to do some investigating. That's great. But he's going to determine that there's nothing really there at the end of the day. So, you know, we, maybe we shouldn't get our hopes up. But if Mueller takes a deep enough dive into into Donald Trump, maybe just maybe he'll find something sketchy. Maybe he'll get his tax returns. Maybe, you know, we're, we're just laying the trap here for Mueller to run distraction for us, essentially, for, I'm sure, even they couldn't have imagined how long it would have dragged out based on how little information they had. And nevertheless, it dragged out for nearly two years, and they got what they wanted. And Russia got what it wanted, which is the most disgusting part of all of this. And Mueller was really, really good at dragging this out for really no reason whatsoever. Remember that call with Flynn and Kislyak and all of the stuff and the lies and the interview and blah, 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 blah. Well, even Mueller, after being appointed in May, four months after the interview took place, it took him yet another basically six or seven months before he was finally able to get General Flynn to plead guilty after getting him to cooperate. Well, I guess the guilty plea involved his cooperation in the investigation moving forward, but he had to step on his throat, he had to threaten his kids, he had to threaten the full weight of the government, Flynn had to go out and get counsel, and uh, and, and, and ex incredibly expensive counsel at that, he ultimately goes bankrupt, he ultimately has had enough of them threatening his family, and he caves, and he says, you know what, fine, I'll plead guilty, and I'll cooperate with the investigation as best I possibly can, in the FBI and the government's mind, that means that Flynn is going to turn on Trump and finally unveil all the evil Russian collusion that's going on, supposedly, or on the other end of things, at a bare minimum. Again, this is from the FBI's perspective still. Michael Flynn is a problem 
for everybody that was in that meeting on January 5th, for Obama, who doesn't like him anyway, for Biden, who has future presidential plans, as we know, and doesn't know what to think unless Obama or Jill Biden tells him what to think, and for all of the other Justice Department and intelligence agency hacks that are in that meeting, they all know that they are all overextending themselves, and they're all overreaching the authority that they've been given, or at least manipulating it in the most corrupt, even if legal way possible. They know that if Flynn gets in the walls within the, the you know and gets gets to look around for a little while, if he gets back in and has top secret clearance, which he has, and it was actually part of one of the predicates for why they were interviewing him, is that uh, or or for that matter, why they were investigating him in the first place, if you remember, is that he's an advisor to Trump, he knows some Russians, and he's got a top secret clearance. We can't allow him, you know, we must look into him, we must make sure that this is all on the up and up, and they determined it was all on the up and up by January of 2017, but here we are 12 months later, and they are, or I guess 11 months later, and they are charging him with lying to the FBI, again, about sanctions that he was never asked about, and about lies that were immaterial to not only this investigation because they had the transcript, but of any legitimate investigation because this does not fall into that category. Not to mention that ultimately, when it actually came down to pressing charges against him, they withheld a gross amount of Brady material, exculpatory evidence that could have potentially put him in a much better situation to negotiate with the government, or for that matter, you know, confess his innocence and plead innocent to lying to the FBI, because the lies in the case of lying to the FBI, if you're in violation of U.S. Criminal Code 1001, the lie needs to be material to the investigation, and none of them were. Furthermore, is that any guilty plea, as we'll talk about a little bit later on, needs to be done knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily. And at least two of those three don't apply here, because again, he was forced through not only the pressure of the government and potential bankruptcy, but also with the prosecution of his son for some petty administration, you know, administrative nonsense that he could have gotten sucked into all of this and uh, could have potentially been found guilty for far violations because he was working, you know, he was like running the books for his dad's company or something along those lines. They were going to try to charge him with nonsense that they wouldn't have otherwise charged anybody with to try to get Flynn to cooperate against Trump. So all of this deck stacked against Flynn, and it still looks like by the end of this episode, he could end up coming out on top, which is just amazing. But Flynn, in pleading guilty, agrees to fully cooperate truthfully, completely, and forthrightly with the investigation with sentencing delayed until those efforts, quote, have been completed. He faced a potential sentence of up to five years in federal prison. Worth note is days later, after Michael Flynn pled guilty, the judge recuses himself with no reason disclosed. Just seems a little weird and worth throwing in there. So a couple days after Flynn pleads guilty, the judge just up and recuses himself. And no reason whatsoever was disclosed to the public. Seems Just seems a little odd. I don't really even know what to make of that, but I, fi- I figured in my research it was worth dropping in here. But let's flash forward to... February 1st, 2018, where Flynn and Mueller's attorneys, they file a joint status report to push back the sentencing for Michael Flynn. Mind you, Flynn's lawyers at this point are Covington and Burling, um, who were just so inept throughout this process that it would be hard to imagine that it wasn't being done on purpose. They screwed up as FARA filings, um, which caused a lot of problems throughout this. They were completely disinterested in any possibility of a plot against General Flynn, which we now know obviously was taking place, 
and they didn't push the government on any of the now-exposed Brady disclosure information, including a copy of the transcript of the call, which, by the way, has yet to have been produced to this very day. And I have an article in the show notes for you uh, from, actually, from the China News Network, the Communist News Network, very fake news, CNN, just to make sure that, you know, I'm not putting all right-wing uh, you know, articles in the show notes here. For as a matter of fact, when often available, I try to use the left-wing ones just so I cannot be accused of any such right-wing bias. It's funny. The leftists will not in any way, shape, or form even read or reply to in any, you know, relevant manner to like a Red State article or a Breitbart article or something along those lines. But when you put it in Washington Post and it's there in one of their trusted sources... Now they have to backpedal a little bit. Now they have to take it a little bit more seriously. Often they don't anyway because, you know, the the doublethink is strong with them. But nevertheless, it's much harder for them to dismiss when you're posting an article from an outlet that they trust as opposed to an article from an outlet that they probably should trust because the outlets that they do trust have been outright lying to them for years now. And for that matter, as I've showed in the first uh, section, I think, were complicit in a lot of this, either because they wanted to be and they were willing to be involved in the takedown of Donald Trump, regardless of how illegitimate and, and unjustified it may be, or because they were just really bad at their jobs and never bothered at any point to ask any questions to any of the FBI sources that were leaking to them information that turned out to be very convenient to the FBI's ultimate goal of trying to trap Michael Flynn in a lie and take down Donald Trump. But, you know, they're journalists. It's not their job to ask questions. Oh, wait a second. Never mind. Moving on. Why are they pushing back the sentencing, you may ask? Well, it's somewhat mutually beneficial to both parties, which is why it's filed as a joint status report rather than just the government filing for the report or just the Flynn attorneys filing for a report. It's mutually beneficial in that the government thinks Flynn still has dirt to share on Donald Trump, on Russian collusion, yada, yada, yada. And they may eventually want him to testify against Trump. So they don't want to sentence him first because then they don't have the sentencing to hang over his head when he's on the stand. Also, if Flynn can be at all helpful to the government, he not only has to be in accordance with his guilty plea in the terms thereof, but he also, it's in his best interest for him to be as helpful to the government as possible because maybe he can get himself a reduced sentence. That said... The Mueller team is still stalling because they already know at this point that the whole Russia probe was a sham. And this continues for several more months. We get more delays to sentencing, which occur on May 1st of 2018, as well as June 29th of 2018, and then again on August 21st of 2018. Then it gets to September 17th, 2018, where Mueller says that the matter is now ready for sentencing. They have done all that they need to do with Michael Flynn. They've come close enough to concluding their investigation in terms of his involvement, and they are now ready to sentence Michael Flynn for his guilty plea of lying about shit that he didn't actually lie about, nor was he ever asked about, and for that matter, were immaterial to any investigation, never mind a legitimate one, of which this clearly was not. Then a couple months later, about two and a half months later, on December 4th of 2018, Mueller suggests a lenient sentence because he's such a nice guy after all. 
Anyway, so um, in this at this time, Flynn had now sat for 19 interviews with the Mueller's team and other Justice Department attorneys, according to the memo that the Mueller team provided and a heavily redacted supplemental filing attached. The documents did not provide specifics on what exactly Mueller had learned from Flynn, but indicated that he provided documents and in, in communications about his time working with the Trump administration during the transition period. So he didn't have anything to give up, but he gave them everything that they asked for in terms of documents and communications with the Trump team, and at the end of the day, they found nothing. All they had was this nonsensical charge of lying to the FBI about stuff that didn't really matter and should have never been charged to begin with. But they were so desperate to try to get him, A, removed from the from the heart of the government as the national security advisor, and B, keep him out of the loop for as long as conceivably possible in terms of Trump's administration, and C, if they could, get him thrown in jail. Why not? Obama hates this guy anyway. The whole intelligence community doesn't like this guy because he was outspoken about the politicization of said intelligence community, and they, knowing, knowing that he was right about all this because they're literally in the middle of doing the thing that he was worried about. <laughs> I mean, the, the irony here is, it's not even irony. It's like, this is exactly what happens, I guess, at the end of the day. But looking back on it, it's it's crazy to think that anybody held up the Clappers, the Brennans, the Comeys, the McCabes of the world as heroes in all of this, when it's quite clear they're not only the villains, but Michael Flynn is the hero in all of this, and he acted is treated, obviously, like the villain. It's very, very backwards, you know, sort of like a society that quarantines the healthy and, for that matter, throws people in jail for playing in the park with their kids, but releases murderers and rapists because they're afraid that they might catch a virus that, let's face it, they probably deserve to get and die from. That was a bit of a tangent, and I apologize. Moving on, five days later, on December 9th of 2018, Jim Comey, still thinking he's the hero in all this, publicly and brazenly admits to skirting around all known protocols for questioning Michael Flynn. He admits this, openly and brazenly. As I said already, Jim Comey, with MSNBC's Nicole Wallace, I have the clip for you now, and take note the reaction from the crowd. Think about what's actually taking place here. Think about everything I told you in part one. Now, granted, most of these people don't know all that yet, but at the end of the day, their reaction to what is being done here is really rather sickening. And the smug, unrepentant manner in which Comey says this is even more disturbing. Here's the audio. Judge for yourselves. You look at this White House now and it's hard to imagine two FBI agents ending up in the sit room. How did that happen? I sent them. Um, um, Something we, I probably wouldn't have done or maybe gotten away with in a more organized investigation, a more organized administration. The FBI wanted to send agents into the White House itself to interview a senior official. You would work through the White House counsel and there'd be discussions and approvals and who would be there. And I thought it's early enough. Let's just send a couple guys over. <laughs> Yeah, let's just send a couple guys over. You know, let's just ignore all protocols and ethics in terms of any investigation. Nevertheless, one that is so important. That's what really grinds my gears about all this, right? Okay, let's assume, let's take a step back. Let's remove all of our knowledge about this and put ourselves in the shoes of our liberal friends who have no knowledge of any of this. Let's assume you thought that this investigation was legitimate 
right? Trump's a Russian. He's some sort of Russian asset. Okay, cool. I mean, not cool, but whatever. So that's your premise. That's a legitimate thing. You're investigating that. You have to know that this investigation is not only so incredibly sensitive, so incredibly unique, but is going to ultimately be scrutinized more heavily than virtually any other investigation in the history of the FBI, probably, right? I mean, they probably didn't necessarily think that would happen right away, right? Because they, when they were plotting all this, assumed Hillary was going to win and it was all going to go away. But they had to have known that ultimately a Republican would get into the office again and that somebody would look back at this or they would regain the Senate and or the House and the House Intelligence Committee would look at this or they would maintain the Senate and that the Senate would look on, uh, at it through the Senate Intelligence Community uh, uh, Committee. There's There's a bunch of avenues by which even without physically having all of the cards, the Republicans could make a stink about this eventually, and they had to have known that they would, as would any rational human being, think that eventually somebody's going to look at this and say, hey, maybe we should take a second look at exactly how all of this was started, being that it was such an important case. It, it merits the highest levels of scrutiny. Knowing all of that, and now looking at all of the evidence, that the FBI cut every corner and neglected every protocol and violated all of the ethics and did all of this stuff for what they think and what they're more specifically their director, who is a bit of a a relative a moral relativist, if you will, who seems to think that yeah, there's good and there's bad, but there's also some bad you can do to get rid of worse. And yeah, that may be true, but that's not exactly the framework upon which I'd like my FBI director to be operating, being that he has such an important position with so many powers, and yet there are also so many restrictions on for specific reasons, such as the actions taken by the FBI director at the time, James Comey. So all of that said, again, this was a super important investigation, and at a minimum, you would think you would want to make sure you're checking all the boxes, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's to ensure that eventually when this goes to court or this goes to impeachment, that there are no loopholes upon which anyone on the opposite side who may be defending Trump being a Russian in this hypothetical could possibly use to overturn any decision or keep him in office or whatever the case may be. You, want, you would want to do everything by the book, not in accordance with Obama saying it and Susan Rice typing it into an email three times to herself. Legitimately by the book, you know the kind that you don't need to send emails to yourself to back up later. The objective kind of by the book, the kind of by the book to where we can look at the information, we can look at the predication, we can look at the investigatory uh, you know, methods used and go, wow, this is all 100% legit, it's unfallible, it's, you know, it is what it is, it's done as an objectively, as objectively as humanly possible, and it turns out, based on all of those actions, which were done by the book, again, legitimately by the book, not that the kind of, you've got to remind yourself by the book, then we've got ourselves a case here. We've got ourselves a Russian, and we can get him out of office because it's terrible. If he was an actual Russian, I wouldn't want him in office either. That's, I think that's something that's lost upon the idiots out there that seem to think that I'm a, I'm a Russian bot or you're a Russian bot or you're 
cool with the, you know, the Russian takeover. Like, no, none of us believe this is true. And it's not because we're ignorant. It's because we're informed. And you think you're, you know, we're racist conspiracy theorists because you're not informed. (sighs) Moving on. That same day, whether or not this is connected, frankly, I don't know. But on December 9th, 2018, the same day that Comey is spouting off about being corrupt as fuck and being proud of it, Flynn's attorneys decided to finally wake up. This is not yet Sidney Powell. This is still Covington and Burling. Um, We have Flynn's attorneys, according to a Fox News article, which I have in the show notes here at the top of the page because I use it quite a bit. Um, Like I said, I do try to back things up with left-wing sources when available, but Fox did a really good timeline of all this, so I, I used it. Flynn's attorney said in a court filing that former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe nudged Flynn not to have an attorney present during the questioning that led to his guilty plea. The document revealed that the FBI took significantly more aggressive tack in handling the Flynn interview than it did during other similar matters, including the agency's sit-downs with Hillary Clinton and ex-Trump advisor George Papadopoulos. So it was different on both sides. They were going super hard after Flynn, even harder than they were going after Papadopoulos, and obviously harder than we know they went after Hillary Clinton. Getting back on track, Papadopoulos, who was charged with making false statements to federal investigators. Flynn's attorneys alleged that the FBI agents in his case did not instruct Flynn that any false statements he made could constitute a crime and decided to not, quote, confront, end quote, him directly about anything he said that contradicted their knowledge of his wiretap communications with Kislyak. That's the end of the blurb from the Fox News article. So just keep all of that in mind is that the FBI truly went above and beyond to try to dupe Michael Flynn into a lie about a topic that they apparently never actually asked him about, according to their documents. This is not me. This is their words. Moving on, March 24th, 2019, Barr reveals the, quote, principal conclusions, end quote, of the Mueller report. Barr revealed that Mueller, and I quote, this is directly from the report, by the way, did not find that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with it conspired or coordinated, end quote, with Russians. I I mean, come on, man. Come on, man. It's in the report. It's like in page two, too. It's not really all that hard to find. And you didn't have to read all 490 pages to figure it out. Not that I didn't read a substantial portion of them anyway, but come on, man. It says it right in Mueller's report. The guy who dragged this investigation out for two years based on nothing because about a month in, he knew almost immediately that they that the whole thing was just a was just a, a nothing burger wrapped in a, a Russian riddle, wrapped inside a democratic enigma. I mean, come on, man. Anyway, so in the report, Mueller says, we didn't find any evidence of Trump-Russian collusion. Barr lets everybody know on March 24th, and then obviously, ultimately, a decision was made about whether or not the uh, Trump administration obstructed with justice. That decision was made by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and Attorney General at the time, William Barr. And if you recall, at the time, there were idiots on social media and probably even members of the media suggesting that Rod Rosenstein was being held hostage in some way, shape, or form by the Trump administration and the Barr DOJ. In order to comply with all of this, it turns out he actually, on occasion, just did the right thing because to charge Donald Trump with obstruction of justice for an investigation that was complete in utter nonsense from the beginning, not because he actually obstructed justice, but because he professed his innocence so loudly and brazenly, which it turns out he was right about. Um, it, it would have been just the it would have been the most farcical trial in the history of the world, considering the level 
of position to which it was being applied. Again, if the Logan Act, if the Logan Act violation against Flynn was a joke, the uh, the uh, the charges of obstructing the investigation, the Mueller report uh, towards Trump would have been infinitely more laughable, which is why that they ultimately didn't decide to go forward with it. Because let's face it, if it went to trial, all this stuff would have come out. And it can't technically go to trial, but if it went to impeachment and then there needed to be Brady disclosures and, and discovery, all of this stuff would have come out either way. So that's why they didn't go for impeachment on the Trump-Russian collusion thing, because all of this would have been found out. And for that matter, they went to ultimately go on the Ukraine thing anyway. And it turned out that really the, the only thing that was unfurled was just more Joe Biden corruption than anything else. They cannot help but cut off their own nose despite their face. It's really fun to watch sometimes. It's unfortunate that people actually buy into this. That's really my point of frustration. But nevertheless, the uh, the comedy is not lost on me. I just wish it didn't piss me off so much most of the time. Moving on from there, April uh, April 18th, 2019, the fully redacted Mueller report is released to the public. Then we get May 29th, 2019, Mueller closes the special counsel's office's investigation into Russian election interference. So now Mueller is completely off the table. He's done his report. He's released it to the public. He ultimately testified in front of Congress, and, uh, you know, he, he did his best to get through that. He did about as well as Joe Biden does through his uh, little teleconferences that he does, including the one with Charlemagne the God, in which he decided to determine who's black and who's not, because, you know, the Democrat plantation really... People mock it. You, you can't tell me that's not a thing after hearing a comment like that. And that brings us to June 2019 when shit gets real. Michael Flynn fires his legal team and hires Sidney Powell and the tides begin to turn. It's amazing what can happen when you have a lawyer who gives a shit. Two months later, August 2019, Powell files a motion to delay sentencing. She also notes in that filing that the government was denying her request for security clearances needed to review classified material pertaining to Flynn, including transcripts and recordings of phone calls that supposedly underpin the charges against him. Also, like I said, this is really where it gets interesting. Mind you, those transcripts and recordings still have not been given to the defense team to this very day. Literally just heard an interview with Sidney Powell. She was on the Dan Bongino show for, uh, for a pretty pretty lengthy interview. It wasn't like super, super long, but it was probably more time than she really had considering how busy she is these days. But uh, she was on with Bongino and she was talking about all this sort of stuff. And she still has not seen a transcript or heard a recording of the December 29th call with Flynn and Act 2 this very day. Now, oddly enough, this is where it starts to get kind of weird. Susan Rice, now in current day, this is not August 2019, this is May 2020, Susan Rice is calling for these transcripts to be released. And I even saw Eric Swalwell tweeting about this to Richard Grinnell. Uh, you know, if this is if these calls are so not damning, why don't you release them? He says to Grinnell on Twitter. Now, if Grinnell could release them, I believe he would. And he does have the authority to do so, or at least recommend to the DOJ that they should be released. Now, DOJ would likely deny such a request because the case is still ongoing. I think that's important here, is that if these transcripts exist, to release them could throw, you know, a monkey wrench into Flynn's defense here. At this point, um, the DOJ has actually been, this DOJ under Barr, has been uh, very helpful to 
Flynn's attorneys because they're discovering all this information. U.S. Attorney Jeff Jensen, who was assigned by Barr to look into this case, is finding all of this exculpatory evidence that the DOJ and the FBI never turned around, uh, and, and for that matter, the special counsel's office never turned over in the first place. So now the DOJ, obligated to turn this information over because of the Brady rule, um, they are turning it over to the defense counsel. And Richard Grinnell, as the acting director of national intelligence, has been doing a lot of the same as far as finding out this information and declassifying it. So if he could declassify the transcript, I think he would. But there's also another theory. Let's posit a little something else here. What if the transcripts and the recordings don't exist? Yep. Stew on that for a second. What if they don't exist? What if they never existed? I mean, it could be said that maybe they were lost, like we'll talk about here in a second, as was the case with other documents in this case. But what if the, what if it never existed? What if they never got a full transcript of the actual call, but rather they got some quick hits through word of mouth, through memos about the call, and they never fully had a transcript of the call, nor did they ever fully have a recording of the call. That would explain why it hasn't been turned over. That would actually be a good excuse for the FBI to say, hey, you know what? These transcripts never actually existed, so we can't turn them over to the defense. But it would then ask the it would then cause the defense to ask for whatever materials they did have related to the call, and that might damn them even more. That said, if the transcript of the call doesn't exist and the recording doesn't exist, they don't have to turn a transcript or a recording over to the defense because that's what they're requesting and that specific item doesn't exist. Rather, there may have been some memos that existed that were just kind of summaries of you uh, of the conversation, if you will. And if they were, in fact, summaries of the call, perhaps those summaries were inaccurate and maybe those need to be turned over in terms of uh, Brady disclosure, which they do either way. But the FBI and the government seem to be doing a pretty good job of hiding them because the DOJ has not yet found them, or at least they have not been made uh, available to the public just yet. But why is Susan Rice asking for them to be released? If she knows that there wasn't a transcript, which she likely does, because again, she was involved in that big January 5th meeting where all of this plot was hatched by Obama, by Comey, by Brennan, by Clapper, by McCabe, by uh, by Rice, and by Yates. Well, Yates doesn't necessarily seem to be fully complicit in all this. She was kind of left on the outside looking in until she was on the inside looking around going, what the fuck is going on in here? So Sally Yates might be, she's an idiot, and she was, uh, you know, did, did her best to obstruct justice while she was the still, I guess, acting at the deputy attorney general under Trump for a little bit and ultimately resigned because she was unwilling to comply with the law, which is a very strange thing for a deputy attorney general. But she's not innocent. But nevertheless, I don't think she's quite as nefarious as these other parties here. Susan Rice being one of them, maybe she's more along the Yates line. Maybe she feels like she was sucked in to a plot that she wasn't fully aware of exactly how devious it was. And she's now asking for the transcripts and the calls to be released because she knows they don't exist. Because Comey told her and told, told everyone else that they existed, but maybe they never really existed. And Susan Rice is asking for them to be released, as well as people like Eric Swalwell are asking for them to be released, because then they can shift all of the blame to Comey and take it all away from Obama and Biden. If Comey's to blame, if Comey misled Biden in the way that it's quite possible Brennan misled Comey, as I think I've talked about in past episodes, then the blame can be passed along.
But in this case, this doesn't really have much to do with Brendan Comey. If these calls don't exist, if these transcripts don't exist, if these recordings are not like a real thing that they ever actually listened to, and then they went ahead and investigated or interrogated Michael Flynn anyway, doing all of the unethical, illicit, non-protocol type actions that they took, Jim Comey's in a lot of fucking trouble. Because he is like one of the top intelligence community officers in the country, and here he is providing false information to other members of the intelligence community, to the Justice Department, and to the White House that led to an interrogation of the incoming National Security Advisor that led to him being ultimately charged with lying to the FBI about a call that they may not have actually had a transcript of? That makes things pretty freaking bad for Jim Comey. So maybe Susan Rice realized her, Obama, Yates, Biden, you know, the people that aren't in the intelligence community here, they kind of got duped by Comey, or at the bare minimum, maybe they realized that they can throw Comey under the bus here, and they can all skate off scot-free in the event that they were um, complicit in all this and fully knowledgeable about all this. But they can say, you got to release those calls, you got to release that transcript, Jim, come on, Jim, release the transcript, oh, there's not a transcript. You told us there was a transcript. That's why we went along with all of this. So maybe, just maybe, uh, Susan Rice throwing Jim Comey under the bus. But to this day, mind you, in all of the court documents and all of the filings and all of everything that has been reported in the intelligence community, uh, Investigator General's report, in the Mueller report, there is precisely zero evidence that a word-for-word -word transcript of the call exists. Nowhere, anywhere, ever is such a thing legitimately referenced as such. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Flynn hasn't seen it. Flynn's lawyers haven't seen it. The judge who has ordered it several times still hasn't seen it. Is it even real? Or maybe, maybe it was just lost. I know, you're like, lost? What the? What do you mean lost? That, that sounds sketchy. Yeah, of course it sounds sketchy because things don't just get lost conveniently in the middle of high-profile cases. Things actually just disappear conveniently for wrongdoers involved in high-profile cases. And that brings me to September 10, 2019. Sidney Powell files a motion with the court. She wants the original 302 document, which she claims was written by Pianca and not struck as the multiply edited versions that we've gotten now submitted to the court were all written by Struck. And as we know from the text messages between him and his lover, FBI Village Bicycle Lisa Page, she had also put in some input, had reviewed them, and provided him with uh, with some critiques on the document. The 302, the original 302, potentially in all likelihood written by Joseph Pianca, was replaced, like I said, by heavily edited versions that still did not say what the FBI wanted it to say in order for them to actually file charges against Michael Flynn regarding lies about sanctions that even in the edited 302, they never said they asked him about. And the FBI won't give the defense the transcript of the call or recording of the call in question. Gee, that's only the two biggest pieces of evidence in the entire case. Your Honor, we're here charging this man with vehicular homicide, but we don't have the defendant's car, nor do we have a dead body. Oh well, things happen, if you ask Judge Sullivan, which is a legitimate thing that he actually said in the course of this case. So, the, uh... The prosecutor in this case, Brendan Van Grack, has said that they, they basically they don't have these documents 
and Sidney Powell insists you must have these documents. They had to have been filed within five days, which we now know they weren't. They took them over almost over three weeks before they actually filed it. But the original 302 that was written by Pianca that Stroke was editing had to have been filed at some point somewhere. It should have been somewhere in their computers, and it wasn't. And they conveniently don't have it. And before Prosecutor Brendan Van Grack, who's the prosecutor on behalf of the special counsel's office, before he even got the opportunity to retort, the judge, Judge Sullivan, stepped in and said to the defense counsel, to Sidney Powell, you know, I see where you're going here, but, you know, if they're saying they don't have it, you know, sometimes documents get lost and things happen. Those are direct quotes. I think they may have been said of, uh, uh, conversely, so he said things can, things happen and documents are lost. That to, that is not a viable excuse in this case. If that's the case, if the most important document in this case, besides the transcript and the recordings, which apparently don't exist or they refuse to turn over, those two documents, the two biggest pieces of evidence in the entire case, are unavailable to the defense, and we're supposed to continue with this trial like it's a real thing. We're supposed to press forward with a guilty plea. That's supposed to be done knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently. Now, we know Michael Flynn is intelligent. Given the information he has, he's making a decision within reasonable cognitive ability. But that said, he's not doing so knowingly because the two biggest pieces of evidence in the case aren't being provided to him, which is absolutely a violation of Brady disclosure on behalf of the government. And he's not doing so voluntarily because, as I mentioned before, he was bankrupted and they threatened to prosecute his son. So we don't have the two biggest pieces of evidence. We don't have even more than one-third of the obligations to actually accept the guilty plea. We have an interview that was conducted that we don't have the transcript. We don't have the recording. There was no legitimate predication, and there was no warning provided by the FBI that Flynn should have counsel or be weary of making any false statements. The whole case is complete nonsense. If this was anybody else in any other timeline— that wasn't attached to Donald Trump, this whole thing would have been laughed out of court and everybody involved would be prosecuted for their corruption. And it's it's insane to me that this hasn't already taken place. But nevertheless, hopefully, it will ultimately be patient, yada, yada, yada. It's at least what I have to tell myself every day. October 2019, the DOJ attorneys fire back at Sidney Powell with the following, and I quote, since the beginning of their involvement, the defendant's new counsel has sought to get the charges dropped, professed their client's actual innocence, and perpetuated conspiracy theories, all while stating that the defendant does not intend to withdraw his guilty plea, they wrote. Which is interesting, because Sidney Powell responds, later that month, and the gloves have officially come off. Sidney Powell filed a motion urging the court to, quote, dismiss the entire prosecution for outrageous government misconduct, end quote. Booyah. She's like, that's it. You know, I've had enough of this shit. Powell at the time alleged that the FBI officials manipulated Flynn's FBI 302 from his initial January 2017 interview with federal prosecutors. 302s are forms used by agents to report or summarize interviews. Wow. So Sidney Powell wanted to just get some information. And the DOJ was like, nah, sorry. Y'all are conspiracy theorists because that's apparently every liberal and left-wing deep state hacks go to then a few days later maybe a few weeks later the gloves come off Sidney Powell says nope 
I just now at this point, you know what? You guys are so over the top. You're not turning over any of the information that I'm requi- I'm requesting. I haven't said that we're going to overturn his guilty plea yet or that we're going to withdraw his guilty plea yet because I haven't been given the fucking information that I've been requesting that might lead to us doing that. And for that, I'm just asking that this whole thing be dismissed now. And he, she asked Judge Sullivan to dismiss the case based on outrageous government misconduct and uh, violating the Brady disclosure would probably be a qualifying act for such a charge. Later on, four days later, as a matter of fact, October 29th, 2019, the uh, the Fox News article lays out here, days later, U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan canceled a hearing citing Mal, uh, Powell's motion demanding that the government produce all evidence related to Flynn and dismiss the prosecution. Then in November of 2019, Sullivan agreed to postpone Flynn's sentencing again until the release of Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz's report on the Russia probe, which obviously aired a lot of the malfeasance going on inside the FBI, and Sidney Powell obviously knew this was relevant, and apparently even Judge Sullivan felt that it was going to be relevant, or at least it could be, and it was worth pushing back the sentencing yet again to see what this report unveils. December 2019... Judge Sullivan denies Flynn the ability to request exculpatory information being held by the FBI. And uh, this is from, I believe, the article again. Flynn's guilty pleas, Sullivan wrote, effectively bar him from raising claims based on any evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment, end quote. Even if Flynn had not waived his Fourth Amendment rights, Sullivan argued that Flynn still needed to, quote, establish that the requested information is favorable, unquote, to his defense in order to obtain it, something he has, quote, failed, end quote, to do, the judge said. So what the, what the judge is basically saying there is that, no, you cannot ask for this exculpatory information because you've already pled guilty. And, and you could potentially do that in a situation where you can establish that the requested information is favorable to your defense, but you failed to do so. Probably because he was unable, or at least Sidney Powell, was unable to actually review the information. How do you prove that the information you're requesting is favorable to your defense without ever actually seeing the information? And while the government continues to deny that it exists, and then once it seemingly recognizes that it exists, says that they don't have to turn it over because the judge says that you've failed to establish that that information is favorable to your defense. Again, just think back to the information that's missing here. This guy is is being found guilty because he pled guilty because he was denied a, a, a litany of exculpatory information that would have otherwise led him to plead not innocent, uh, not guilty, and obviously try this out in court. Or, for that matter, the judge and the DOJ should have, could have, would have thrown this thing out in its entirety. And uh, so there's there is no transcript of the call. There's no recording of the call. The initial FBI 302, which is supposed to document the initial interview, is nowhere to be found. Neither is the guy who actually wrote it. And oh, by the way, the special counsel didn't actually submit the original 302 as part of their initial case. They didn't provide a copy of the of the interview or a recording of the interview. Rather, they interviewed Strzok five to six months after the fact and used that interview as evidence of the interview rather than using the 302, even the one that was edited by Stroke, they didn't use certainly the original, which is a ghost, as is, again, the guy who wrote it. All of this is not at all conspicuous, and for some reason, we're supposed to be able to press forward 
with charges against a former national security advisor at this point, a former head of the DIA, and a former, oh, I guess the current, three-star general, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. This whole thing is just completely backwards. The idea that this should have kept going, at, and, I mean, uh, there's been at least 20 steps along the way where somebody should have stopped and been like, okay, this is this is too far now. We've now violated every protocol, every ethic, everything that we can conceivably violate to try to get this guy. He still doesn't, we still don't really have any legitimate dirt on him. We're charging him with a lie that isn't even a lie, that isn't material, and that he ultimately pled guilty to, despite the fact that he never actually did any of the things that we charged him with because we pressured him through financial means, through familial means. This is, this is just, this is crazy. I mean, God forbid any of this ever happened to a Democrat. It would be scorched fucking earth. Anyway, January 7th, 2020, the DOJ attorneys now recommend up to six months in prison for Michael Flynn. Basically, what happened is once Sidney Powell started fighting back, they were like, you know what? I think you're violating the terms of your guilty plea here because God forbid you actually dig into this case a little bit and try to prove your innocence after the fact, uh, even though, you know, you you did plead guilty, but you pled guilty based on a a, a woeful lack of information because we were super sketchy. And now for looking into our sketchiness, now we're no longer suggesting no get, no jail time as Robert Mueller had. We are now looking to give you six months in prison. And this happened while General uh, Attorney General Barr was, at, was the DOJ. So how did this happen? Well, it turns out that some of his underlings took it upon themselves to tell Judge Sullivan that now we're recommending prison time. For Michael Flynn, he's violating his guilty plea. He hasn't fully cooperated with us, and, and he dare try to prove his innocence through his new attorney who finally gives a shit and isn't just going along with everything that we give them and is actually asking a few questions, which is, you know, her job. But uh, so now, all of a sudden, they're striking back. They don't like that Flynn is striking back, so they're retaliating with the pro uh, the prospect of actual jail time. So... Sidney Powell says that's how you want to play it. One week later, Flynn moved to withdraw his guilty plea for lying to the FBI, citing bad faith, vindictiveness, and breach of the plea agreement by the government. So he turned their logic back around on them. He said, look, I've, I've complied. Mueller said I complied, sat down for 19 interviews, provided all these documents, provided all of my whereabouts, all of my communications with people on the Trump team. You guys came up with nothing. You're charging me with lies. I didn't even tell. I wasn't even given all this information here. And now that Sidney Powell's asking a few questions, now you're trying to hit me with a prison sentence after I was fully complicit in all this in accordance with my plea deal? No, 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 no. This is bad faith. This is vindictiveness, and this is a breach of the plea deal. And since I haven't been sentenced yet, I'm going to go ahead and withdraw my guilty plea. Two days later, Judge Sullivan pushes sentencing back yet again to consider all of this. Then things start to get pretty interesting in February. February 9th, 2020, federal prosecutors proposed delaying approaching deadlines in the Flynn case. Prosecutors argued that Flynn's former attorney should testify after he claimed to receive ineffective assistance from them. And I quote, The government's request that the court suspend the current briefing schedule concerning the defendant's motion until such time as the government has been able to confer with Covington regarding the information it seeks, prosecutors wrote. So, this is the uh, the, the testimony from Flynn's former lawyers so that the federal government could get an idea of what exactly they were doing for all the money they were charging General Flynn, because it turns out, 
like the new attorney stepped in and is starting to ask all these questions that they probably should have been asking. There's a lot of documents that haven't been handed over to the current defense team that they would, the government would like to see and that the government feels that the defense has a right to. So there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of balls in the air at this point. So they're just pushing back all of these deadlines because of all these new complications. The next day, February 10th, 2020, Sullivan indefinitely postpones Flynn's sentencing date after federal prosecutors filed their motion to delay the deadlines. On Valentine's Day of this year, February 14th, 2020, Barr tapped U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri, Jeff Jensen, to review Flynn's case. Jensen was assigned to work hand-in-hand with the lead prosecutor of Flynn's case, Brandon Van Grack. So now now the AG has put somebody in place to at least keep an eye on Van Grack and the prosecutor's team and see what exactly you guys doing over here. We seem to notice that Sidney Powell's making a bunch of motions. You guys are doing everything you can to possibly fight them. But in actuality, I think they have a point here. We're going to have to take a little bit of, a, of an oversight role in all of this as it breaks out. Then we go a couple months later, April 9th, 2020. Yeah, we're getting close to current day here. Law.com writes this article. Headline, Covington hands over more files to Mike Flynn after inadvertently, in quotes, missing them earlier. The article, it says, reads, A year after being fired by former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, lawyers of Covington and Burling revealed Thursday that they recently uncovered emails and handwritten notes that were inadvertently, again in air quotes, left out of a trove of records turned over last summer to his new defense counsel. And I quote, The court summarily disposes of Mr. Flynn's arguments that the FBI conducted an ambush interview for the purposes of trapping him into making false statements and that the government pressured him to enter a guilty plea. End quote, wrote U.S. Judge Sullivan of the District of Columbia in his ruling. And I quote, The record proves otherwise. End quote. Well, That quote would age very poorly for Judge Sullivan because less than three weeks later, the DOJ released documents and records that showed that the FBI conducted an ambush interview for the purposes of trapping Mr. Flynn into making false statements and that the government pressured him into entering a guilty plea because that's exactly what happened. We'll get into some of the finer details here because I have a document that kind of does a really good job of summarizing what the DOJ found in all this and we'll get to it in a little bit. So on April 29, 2020, DOJ releases new documents related to FBI misconduct. This were uh, this included handwritten notes by what is presumed to be FBI lawyer Bill Priestap, who was uh, basically Peter Strzok's boss in all of this. He was uh, a higher up than Strzok, but obviously not quite as high as the deputy director or the director himself. Some of these notes include things like, what is our goal here? truth slash admission or to get him to lie so that he so we can get him fired which is pretty ridiculous of them to put it in the notes there and now Sidney Powell has come out and said that it was pretty clear when she saw those notes she actually said this in the Bongino interview to be fair try to source where I can Uh, when she saw those notes she said it was very clear to her that these notes were being written to the deputy director who was obviously reviewing the 302s and all the information pertaining to the Flynn interview McCabe himself set up the Flynn interview, if you recall. He was the one who physically got on the phone with Flynn and said, we're going to send a couple guys over at apparently Comey's request, as he's admitted. And so Powell's assuming that Priestap in reviewing these documents is seeing what is happening in this interview and seeing what what it was being said to Flynn and w- what protocols were being violated. And it was like, what exactly is our goal here? We're not even showing them the transcript. 
We always show people the transcript because we want to use their words against them or at a bare minimum, particularly when the person isn't a true suspect of an investigation, which he was, despite the fact that they were telling him he wasn't, uh, you would want to use those words against him or try to get him to recall a little bit more about the situation. It's better to, you know, maybe give away a little information in exchange for more information than to just be cautious and not do anything in a lot of situations. So take that for what you will. That said, another thing that came out in all this is that Paige told Strzok to just slip it in. You can't make this stuff up. Pertaining to a warning that Flynn could be prosecuted for lying to the FBI agents. Now, if Comey, or should I say McCabe, also went out of his way to put Flynn at ease. And, uh, oh, that was another thing I wanted to mention to McCabe, too, is that McCabe told, basically, Sally Yates was like, what are we doing interviewing Michael Flynn? And, and she called Mike, uh, Andrew McCabe about it. McCabe was like, oh, yeah, it's too late. I already sent the guys over. So the, not only did they skirt White House counsel, they skirted the DOJ in some respects there, too, because she's the deputy attorney general. You figured she'd be made abreast of something like this. Nope. As Comey said, I just sent a couple guys over. And McCabe went along with it and did everything he could to put Flynn at ease and tell him, no, nah, you don't need counsel, no big deal. It's just a, just a casual conversation between higher-ups in the FBI. You know how it is. You know, the bureaucracy. We like we like to chill. Sometimes we call ourselves the broocracy because it is such a bro show up there. But nevertheless, uh, they didn't show him the transcript, as I mentioned already. Then that brings us to April 7th, 2020. The DOJ formally makes a request for Judge Sullivan to drop the case against Michael Flynn. Five days later, Judge Sullivan decides that he wants to hear amicus briefs on the matter. An amicus brief is basically, well, I guess an amicus curie is ultimately what he appoints here. It's a, a former U.S. District Judge John Gleason is the amicus curie, the friend of the court. And basically what's going on here is that the DOJ's made a recommendation. The judge has the right to consider it, but ultimately doesn't really have much standing as far as overturning it. Like, the DOJ makes the decisions here. It's like, you watch Law & Order or whatever, and the AG comes in. He's like, yeah, we're dropping the case. It's like, oh, what do you mean we're dropping the case? We're dropping the case. That's the end of that. Boom, done. Let's move on. That's generally the case here, particularly with the Attorney General getting involved. And the DOJ passing down a 20-page document, which is the document I teased a little earlier that we'll be getting into in a minute. But Judge Sullivan decides to hear amicus briefs. So friend of the court, amicus curie, would come in and uh, basically as a, an, a, a seemingly uninterested third party come in and just kind of argue the merits of the case here. The DOJ is saying drop the case. Judge Sullivan not only wants to hear arguments for why he shouldn't drop the case, even though he's going to drop the case anyway, and, but he also wants to hear whether or not judge former Judge Gleason here has any arguments for the idea that Flynn could be charged with perjury for his previous guilty pleas, because technically he pled guilty. He said, I was guilty. He was under oath. It can be said that he lied by doing so, but frankly, there is no way that that would ever actually happen. As a matter of fact, there are, are there are guilty pleas all the time that are overturned as a result of additional information coming in after the fact, particularly things like Brady disclosures, where the government has information that they're withholding for the purposes of um, making sure that the prosecution is easier uh, for the prosecutor in that particular case. So Gleason, by the way, not a disinterested third party at all. He's a very interested third party. He's a rabid anti-Trumper who spoke out during impeachment and, for that matter, has written op-eds about General Flynn specifically. So uh, he is he is by no means like a, a, a you know an, a, an arbiter of truth here. He's not an objective third party. 
Uh, he's somebody who's coming in specifically to argue these points because this is how he feels, and Judge Sullivan is giving him the floor because he wants to feel like he has some power in all of this, and even though he probably will sign the document and ultimately have this case dropped, that doesn't prevent him from making a circus of this in the meantime. Now, weirdly enough, one of the rules that Judge Sullivan applied to this case here in order for him to hear amicus briefings in terms of the DOJ trying to drop this case here is Rule thirty, uh, Rule 48, um, which is a, obviously a, a, some, some sort of legal statute here. As a matter of fact, it's Rule 48A of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure requires a prosecutor to obtain, quote, leave of court, end quote, before dismissing charges against a criminal defendant. Um, this particular rule, as a matter of fact, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read on here. That language could conceivably be read to allow for considerable judicial involvement in the determination to dismiss criminal charges. Fair enough. But decisions to dismiss pending criminal charges, no less than decisions to initiate charges or to identify which charges to bring, lie squarely within the ken of prosecutorial discretion, otherwise known in this case as the DOJ, who is overriding all of the prosecutors involved in this, including the special counsel's office. To that end, this is written, I, got, I have the link here. Yes, I do have the link here in the show notes for you from where I'm reading this from. Uh, to that end, the Supreme Court has declined to construe Rule 48A's, quote, leave of court requirement, end quote, to confer any substantial role for courts in the determination whether to dismiss charges. Rather, the, quote, principal object of the leave of court requirement, end quote, has been understood to be a narrow one. And I quote, to protect the defendant against prosecutorial harassment when the government moves to dismiss an indictment over the defendant's objection, end quote. So, this is being done to, this rule is put in place specifically to defend and protect the defendant, not protect the court, not protect the prosecutor. It's being put in place basically what, so here's what can be, what can be done. As a matter of fact, this was kind of loosely done to General Flynn, already in a variety of situations, is that the the court can come in, or the, I'm, I'm sorry, let's be specific here, the prosecutor can come in and say, we're filing charges against this defendant. And then what they can do is after they, you know, make the defendant dance through a bunch of hoops, show up to a bunch of hearings, yada, 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 they say, you know what, we're going to dismiss this charge without prejudice, and we're going to come back potentially at a later time if we get gather any information and bring these charges again against the defendant, and they could keep doing this over and over again, causing undue harm to that defendant, especially if he's, you know, innocent in all this, the court fees and the, the hassle and the public shaming that could be, you know, uh, that could result from the, the essentially the government abusing its power, prosecutorial harassment, I think is the term that they use there, yes, and, and that is really what that is, is that the, the government has the ability to use its infinite resources, essentially, to just harass you into ultimately giving up a guilty plea or harass you into just keeping you so tied up in paperwork that even if they don't have a case against you, they can grossly inconvenience your life in a way that is unjustified, even even if you're guilty in some cases. But that whole decision is actually from Rinaldi versus United States. That is 434 U.S. 2229 Whatever these numbers mean at the end here, it's all in the show notes for you. But uh, yes, Rinaldi versus United States established that Rule 48A is not in place to protect the prosecutor or to protect the court. It is specifically in place to, to protect the defendant 
And yet, that's what Judge Sullivan is using to justify the amicus briefings for which he wants to hear arguments regarding why not only should the judge not comply with the DOJ's request, but furthermore, to potentially charge Michael Flynn with perjury because Judge Sullivan is clearly showing his hand. Mind you, Judge Sullivan earlier in this case called Michael Flynn a traitor to this country and then had to, he had to apologize. I'm sorry, your apology is not accepted. Your recusal, however, should have been, and that's the way that that should have gone. Can you imagine that? You imagine, I mean, think of any other trial. Again, I got to like take a step back, try to put this in layman's terms, not that I'm a lawyer by any means, but just try to think about it in terms of a normal case. If you're uh, if you're up, you know, you're on murder charges or whatever the case may be, and the judge gets up there and starts calling you a murderer in the middle of the trial, well, that seems like the judge is a little biased and probably has no place presiding over this case. Now, the judge obviously doesn't make the ultimate decision, right? That's for a jury. In this case, the judge may very well make the decision, but um, in a jury trial, for instance, the judge, even if they don't make the ultimate decision, they're not making the verdict, uh, you know, they're, they're not declaring the defendant innocent or guilty, they are still presiding over the case. They have the ability to, um, you know, to, to accept objections or to dismiss them from either counsel. It could be said that the judge has a lot of power as the referee, essentially, in the whole process. If the referee's in the bag for one of the teams, we all know, just to use a sports analogy, how that sort of thing can sway the outcome of the game. And Unfortunately, the game being played here is the game of how to fuck Michael Flynn out of his life and his reputation, and Judge Sullivan seems to just be going along with the prosecutors who are clearly doing everything they can to stretch this out and to prosecutorially harass him. But nevertheless, the judge is using that Rule 48, which is there to defend the defendant against the defendant. It's bizarre. It's bonkers. And like I said, I think what's happening here is Judge Sullivan is just trying to make a circus of this as best as he possibly can and hopes that he can make enough of a stink here to make it look like he did something even though he doesn't really have much power to do anything and the DOJ will ultimately drop these charges whether he likes it or not, but that's not going to stop him from making an ass of himself and of the law in the process. So let's go ahead and dive into the document that the DOJ provided to the court requesting that the, uh, well, you know, let me just read it from here. The government's motion to dismiss the criminal information against the defendant, Michael T. Flynn. So if we look at the actual document here, the United States of America hereby moves to dismiss with prejudice, which basically means that they're not going to be revisiting this at any point. They're dismissing it outright. The charges are dropped and Michael Flynn can go back to living his life, hopefully. Um, I, I, this is like a 20 page document. I just highlighted specific sections that emphasize the points that I've been making this whole podcast or the whole two parter here. Let me move to, uh, the bottom of page one here where the, uh, government writes, Mr. Flynn entered a guilty plea, which ha- he has since sought to withdraw to a single count of making false statements in a January 24, 2017 interview with investigators of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Here's where it gets good. This crime, however, requires a statement to be not simply false, but materially false with respect to a matter under investigation. 18 U.S. Criminal Code 1001A, subsection 2. Uh, material materiality is an essential element of this offense. So as I've been telling you for two episodes going on three and a half hours now is that, yes, he may have, which I still don't even believe because, again, I don't think he was spoken to about sanctions or asked about sanctions, nor could he have lied about them because he was never asked about them. 
But even if you wanted to make the claim that he was, the lie itself is immaterial to any matter under investigation. Why? Several reasons. First and foremost, the investigation unto itself is illegitimate. So there, that, that, that's a pretty good foundation upon which to throw all this out. Second of all, even if you thought it was legitimate, they had the transcript of the call, supposedly. They've reviewed it, determined that there was nothing wrong with the call. There could be no element of that call under investigation because they've already determined that none of it was illicit and they had the transcript of it. And if they had any evidence that any of it was illegitimate, they would have never had to interview Flynn in the first place. They could have simply locked him up for whatever it was that they thought he was guilty of because they had the call and they had the transcript. Supposedly, they reviewed all of it and they determined, they determined, not me, not you, not you know, Glenn Beck or Mark Levin, the FBI determined that there was nothing illicit about the calls. Moving on to another section here, because I'm just kind of hopping around, because there's a lot of information here, but a lot of it unfurls some of the stuff that came out as a result of the DOJ taking a second look at this. From the article, I'm sorry, from the document, page two, the government has concluded that the interview of Mr. Flynn was untethered to and unjustified by the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into Mr. Flynn, a no longer justifiably predicated investigation that the FBI had, in the Bureau's own words, prepared to close because it had yielded an, and I quote, absence of any derogatory information, end quote. A little bit later on in that paragraph, the government is not persuaded that the January 24, 2017 interview was conducted with a legitimate investigative basis and therefore does not believe Mr. Flynn's statements were material, even if untrue. Moreover, we do not believe that the government can prove either the relevant false statements or their materiality beyond a reasonable doubt, end quote. So what's he saying there? <laughs> well, he's telling you exactly what I've been telling you. He's saying that even if it was false, it's not necessarily material, and even if... You wanted to believe that it was both false and material. The government doesn't believe at this point, given all the information that they have, that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that either of those things are true, that the statements were false and that the information was material to any ongoing matter under investigation. It's pretty damning. It's really, really not good. If, you're, if you were part of this investigation, that one's got to hurt. So here's some of the factual background here. The FBI opened a counterintelligence investigation of Mr. Flynn on August 16, 2016. You know that. As part of the larger crossfire hurricane umbrella. You know that. Into the presidential campaign of Donald J. Trump and its possible coordination with Russian officials to interfere with the 2016 election. You already knew that. Codename Crossfire Razor. That's Michael Flynn. The investigation's stated goal was to determine whether Mr. Flynn, and I quote, was directed and controlled by and or coordinated activities with the Russian Federation in a manner which is a threat to the national security and or possibly a violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, end quote. And then they cite the criminal code there. Moving on a little bit later, the FBI predicated the counterintelligence investigation of him on a, on, quote, an articulable factual basis, end quote, that consisted of three facts. Mr. Flynn's service as a foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, his publicly documented connection to state-affiliated Russian entities, and the fact that he traveled to Russia in December of 2015. After approximately four months of investigation, however, 
the FBI, quote, determined that Mr. Flynn was no longer a viable candidate as part of the larger Crossfire Hurricane Umbrella case, end quote, and prepared to close the investigation. At some point prior to January 4th, 2017, the FBI drafted a, quote, closing communication, end quote, to effect the termination of the case. Um, and that is C, example one, example three, at two, FBI, FD 302. So that's, that's an FBI federal document 302, which is the 302 I've been telling you about, not on Michael Flynn this time around, but on the interview of Mary McCord that took place as part of the Mueller investigation on July 17th, 2017. Continuing on in the DOJ's document here, this document noted the specific goal, in quotes, and predication for the investigation. It laid out the numerous searches of holdings and investigative steps that had at each step yielded, quote, no derogatory information, end quote, on Michael Flynn. So it goes on to talk about the call itself a couple pages later, and I quote, on January 4th, 2017, FBI Deputy Assistant Director Peter Strzok learned that, quote, Razor's closure, end quote, had not been timely executed, and the counterintelligence investigation into Mr. Flynn was unexpectedly still formally open. Mr. Strzok immediately relayed the, quote, serendipitously good, end quote, news to Lisa Page, the special counsel to FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, remarking that, quote, our utter incompetence actually helps us, end quote. You just can't make this stuff up. Uh, a couple sentences later, as of January 4, 2017, then... The FBI kept open its counterintelligence investigation into Mr. Flynn based solely on his calls with Kislyak, the only new information to arise, determination to close the case. So, they had no new information other than the call with Kislyak, which really wasn't new because they had already had it prior when it occurred because he wasn't unmasked. So somebody had it, probably was the FBI. Otherwise, it was just straight up Obama, which makes things very, very awkward i would say at the next former white house meeting or whatever the next the next uh the next phone call he has with michael isikoff and all of his buddies which just will conveniently leak to the press i'm sure conveniently emphasis on the conveniently and leak let's emphasize the leak as well anyway moving on fbi director comey took the position that the fbi would not notify the incoming trump administration of the flynn kislyak communication Moving on from there, Deputy Attorney General Yates and another senior DOJ became, quote, frustrated, end quote, when Director Comey's justifications for withholding the information from the Trump administration repeatedly, quote, morphed, and end quote, vacillating from the potential compromise of, quote, counterintelligence, end quote, investigation to the pro protection of a purported, quote, criminal, end quote, investigation. So basically, Yates and other people are asking him, why are we doing this again? Like, why aren't we telling the Trump team? We need to have a pretty good explanation as to why we're withholding information from the incoming administration. And he keeps oscillating basically back and forth between, oh, well, this is a counterintelligence investigation. Oh, there's a purported criminal investigation. He never really says what either or for or about, but he keeps telling them that because he doesn't want to give the actual reason, which is at all costs. Michael Flynn is not allowed to be the national security advisor because the holier-than-thou James Comey and his buddy Barack Obama have dubbed it so. Moving on, page 7 of the, of the uh, document here from the DOJ. Matters came to a head on January 24, 2017. That morning, Sally Yates contacted Director Comey to demand that the FBI notify the White House of the communications. Director Comey did not initially return her call. 
When Deputy oh, De Director Comey called her late back later that day, he advised her that FBI agents were already on their way to the White House to interview Michael Flynn. So I'm sorry, I actually said uh, it was the deputy director before. It was the director. Sally Yates is like, yo, you guys need to disclose this information to the incoming team. They need to know if they have a Russian working as the national security advisor. And Comey's like, eh, it's kind of too late. We already sent somebody over to go interview him, and that means that our plot has already begun, and that means that we are going to be doing everything in our power to get this guy removed from office rather than simply tell Trump and his team that, hey, you guys might have a Russian working within your team here. You might want to know about this, but, you know, instead they took much shadier actions because they didn't trust Trump either, and only because they didn't trust Trump. If this was any other administration, that person would be immediately told, you know how I know? Because Dianne Feinstein was told when they found, when the FBI discovered that there was a Chinese spy working for her as a driver, as soon as they found out, they briefed her. So why wouldn't they do the same with Trump? As a matter of fact, when the Russians hacked the email, supposedly, they gave briefings to Hillary Clinton. So why wouldn't they give similar briefings to the Trump team? Oh, they did. But when they gave those defensive briefings to the Trump team, it turned out that they were actually spying on the Trump team instead of notifying them that there may be some trouble afoot within the walls of their campaign. Trouble that they actually hoped was there, the FBI that is, so that they can turn around and use it against the incoming president of the United States, Donald John Trump. Getting back to the DOJ's article here, acting Attorney General Sally Yates was, quote, flabbergasted and, quote, dumbfounded. And another DOJ official hit the roof upon hearing of this development, giving that an interview of Flynn should have been coordinated with the DOJ, something I had already told you. On January 21st, 2017, Peter Strzok proposed to Bill Prystap, the FBI's counterintelligence chief, that D, uh, Mr. Flynn should be given a, quote, defensive briefing about an investigation under the Crossfire Hurricane umbrella or alternatively a, quote, interview under light defensive briefing pretext. So here's another example of them trying to use a defensive briefing, letting Flynn know he might be under investigation or that there's stuff going on that he needs to be aware of in the event that he's innocent, which the last that I checked, our Justice Department and our justice system as a whole is supposed to presume until they know otherwise, or at least have found him guilty of otherwise. But uh, Mr. Flynn should have been given a defensive briefing knowing that he could be involved in a Russian plot that maybe he's not even aware of. But instead of giving a defensive briefing, Peter Strzok suggests, why don't we give him an interview under light of defensive briefing pretext, which is essentially what they ended up doing, even though they didn't even call it a defensive briefing because they didn't want to make him aware that he was involved in any investigatory measures whatsoever because they're shady as hell. On January 22nd, 2017, an FBI attorney emailed Mr. Strzok and Ms. Page that, quote, if we usually tell the White House then I think we should do what we normally do, end quote. Though the FBI official also noted that they could be, quote, told not to debrief or interview Razor, which is Flynn again, end quote. Um, so basically they were saying, look, if we normally talk to the White House counsel about before talking to members of the cabinet, we should do that here. Although if you do that, there is a decent chance you'll be told that you're not allowed to interview him or debrief him on this particular matter. So knowing that, they found a back door. They had McCabe call up uh, Flynn and say, hey, we're just going to, you know, we're, Comey said, we're just going to send a couple guys over. So uh, we're just going to send a couple guys over. We're going to ask you about some questions and no big deal, brah. In advance of the interview, Director Comey determined that they would go interview Mr. Flynn the following day without notifying either DOJ or the White House counsel. 
In a December 2018 interview with MSNBC and NBC News analyst Nicole Wallace, he stated this course of action was, quote, something we, I probably, wouldn't have done or gotten away with in a more organized administration. So he says, I couldn't have gotten away with it. You know, he, he's like the opposite of the, uh, he's the opposite of the guy at the end of Scooby-Doo. He's like, I got away with it because of you meddling kids and your more chaotic administration and all that sort of stuff. But when you say get away with, typically implies you were doing something wrong, doesn't it? Even though he said it all fucking holier than thou, you don't get away with doing the right thing, typically. Just saying. Moving on, messages between Mr. Strzok and Ms. Page on January 23rd, 2017 indicated that, quote, Bill, Bill Prystap, had conducted, quote, several conversations with Andrew McCabe, end quote, because he wanted to know why we had to go aggressively doing these things openly, end quote. On the morning of January 24, 2017, follow-up messages between Strzok and Page indicated that, quote, Bill brought it up again this time in front of Director Comey, and that Deputy Director McCabe was, quote, frustrated and, quote, cut him off, end quote. So it appears that Priestap is at this point asking some questions, like, why are we doing this exactly? Like I said, in the handwritten notes, which I think we'll get to in a minute here, he's talking about what is our intent here exactly? Because it seems like we're doing, we're not doing any of this by the book, despite the fact that that's what Susan Rice told herself in her email, and that's what Barack Obama told everybody in that sketchy-ass meeting on January 5th. We're doing, we're doing everything by the book, okay? How dare you tarnish my legacy? I'm Barack freaking Obama. Bitch. Anyway, so I assume he ends every sentence with bitch when he's talking to Comey. Then the document goes on, as I've already told you. McCabe called Mr. Flynn to arrange the meeting. He explained that recent media statements about his contacts with Kislyak merited a, quote, sit-down, end quote, and expressed the FBI's desire to accomplish the interview, quote, quickly, quietly, and discreetly as possible, end quote. Deputy Director McCabe further advised that if Flynn wished to have anyone else at the meeting, including the White House counsel, the FBI would have to elevate the issue to DOJ. Mr. Flynn himself, a former director of defense Intelli of the Defense Intelligence Agency, stated that he readily expected that the FBI already knew the contents of his conversation with the ambassador, stating, "You and I quote, and you can't make this up either, you listen to everything they say, end quote, referring to the Russians. Mr. Flynn then agreed to meet with the interviewing agents of McCabe's office less than two hours later. So put yourself in Flynn's position here for a second. Let's assume you're an evil Russian. Deputy Director of the FBI calls you. I'm going to send a couple guys over. Uh, you don't want like a lawyer there or anything like that. Otherwise, we're going to have to escalate this to the DOJ, which you would probably want if you were looking to stall that interview any longer than necessary in order to try to get your story straight, try to figure out what they might know. He might be an evil Russian, hypothetically, but he's still a former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. He knows all their tricks. He's got some contacts. There's a lot of people who probably don't know about this investigation because McCabe is saying that they want to do it quietly and quickly. So he could probably ask around, find out what exactly they might have on him, and then he can get his story straight. Instead of that, he tells McCabe, yeah, I mean, I figured you guys already know what I said anyway because you listen to everything that the Russians say, and why don't we go ahead and get this over with you and come on over in a couple hours. Not Certainly not enough time to come up with some grand lie about a conversation that he knows that they have a copy of that he certainly doesn't remember every word of. Just seems a little interesting to me, man. That just seems very weird that he would know exactly what they... He knows they were listening, so why would he try to lie about stuff that he doesn't need to lie about? Probably because he didn't. 
just throwing it out there. When interviewing Mr. Flynn, Mr. Strzok and other agent and the other agent, quote, didn't show him the transcripts, end quote, of his calls, nor did the agent give at any point warnings that making false statements would be a crime. According to the FBI agent's recollection, when asked if Mr. Flynn recalled any conversation in which he encouraged Kislyak, quote, not to escalate the situation in its response to the American sanctions, Mr. Flynn responded uncertainly, stating, not really, I don't remember. It wasn't, don't do anything, as he said in quotes. Mr. Flynn also stated that, although it was possible, he did not recall any conversation in which the ambassador stated that, the, that Russia would moderate its response due to Mr. Flynn's request. So it wasn't even it wasn't even a definitive no that he that he made. He just said he didn't really remember. I don't recall. I don't know. It doesn't you know, I wasn't don't do anything. It was just let's you know, obviously Kislyak was calling about the punishments that were just levied by Obama. So obviously that was the subject of the conversation, but as far as the specifics in terms of sanctions, which is only one of many punishments that were doled out there, he doesn't know. He wasn't sure. And he says as much. This is the lie that he was going to be prosecuted for and potentially thrown in jail for up to five years. It's insane. FBI agents reported to their leadership that Mr. Flynn exhibited, quote, a very sure demeanor, end quote, and, quote, did not give any indicators of deception, end quote. But the agents, quote, had the impression at the time that Mr. Flynn was not lying or did not think he was lying, end quote. When Director Comey was asked, based on his evaluation of the case, do you believe that Mr. Flynn lied? Deputy Director responded, I don't know. I think there is an argument to be made he lied, and it is a close one. End quote. Why? What, what, what did he see? He wasn't in the conversation. He wasn't there. He wasn't doing the interview, right? There's no interview to be had for him. We don't even know that a transcript or, or a recording of the interview or of the call existed. All he's possibly working on is Peter Strzok and Joe Pianca's word, and both of which said in their own report that they don't think he was lying to them. So what is Comey drawing a conclusion based on? If he If he thinks that something went on in that phone call that needed to be dealt with, he had the transcript of the phone call already. I don't know how many fucking times I need to say this. <laughs> If he has the transcript, then there's no reason for him to not prosecute Michael Flynn based on what he sees in that transcript that he thinks is illegal. There's no need to interview him. What? Why are you going to ask him about a conversation you already have? Maybe they don't actually have it, as I pondered, as I posited earlier in the podcast. Either way, Jim Comey is just making shit up as he goes along. He's making up protocols. He's making up morals he's just making up terms he's making up he's making up he's making up outright evidence he doesn't have any evidence of this statement i don't know there's an argument to be made that he lied what argument jim and why is it a close one when your own agents the ones who actually interviewed him said that they didn't that he didn't lie it's crazy it's actually crazy this is this is their hero folks this danny tanner looking motherfucker is the hero of the left because he's about as sketchy as any of their other heroes Obama and Hillary included. Then the actual DOJ document gets into the legal background here, and they mention Rule 48A that I mentioned towards the end of, uh, of the timeline that I presented. Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 48A permits the government, quote, with leave of court, end quote, to, quote, dismiss an indi indictment, information, or complaint, end quote. 
It is also, quote, well established that the government may move to dismiss even after a complaint has turned into a conviction because of a guilty plea, end quote, in accordance with the United States versus Hector. Also, as I quoted before, see also Rinaldi versus the United States. So in both cases there, it was determined that the government can, in fact, dismiss charges against somebody even if they've put in a guilty plea, like I said. This is most certainly not the first time this has ever happened. Judge John Gleason is going to come in and argue on behalf of, uh, of, I guess, the quarter of the prosecutor to make the case that the judge doesn't need to drop the case, but it's quite clear, in accordance with the same rule that he's using to get the amicus briefings, Rule 48A, of the Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 48A, to be specific, uh, that that this is a power bestowed upon the government for the protection of the defendant, and no other interpretation is really relevant or proven in any way, shape, or form. So, Rule 48A is actually helping Michael Flynn, despite the fact that Judge Sullivan's trying to use it against him. Moving on, a couple sentences later, the document cites United States versus Nixon, uh, which states that the uh, the executive branch has exclusive authority and absolute discretion to decide whether to prosecute a case, end quote. So uh, that's worth note there as well. Also, another sentence in a few paragraphs later, nor should a court second-guess the government's conclusion that additional prosecution or punishment would not serve the public interest. So in this case, the government is making the conclusion that additional prosecution or punishment on this particular individual would not be in the public interest, which we know. It's simply not. It is the fruit of a poisonous tree that was a corrupt investigation. The lies aren't material, and the guilty plea was not made voluntarily or knowingly. This doesn't cover any legal standard at all, nevertheless one. I mean, it, like they, they keep pretending like this is this ironclad case. He pled guilty twice, yada, yada, yada. There isn't an element of this case that's fucking legitimate from the beginning to end. The investigation was crooked. The interrogation was crooked. The charges are nonsensical. The guilty plea isn't, or the, the actual charge is not only nonsensical because he didn't lie, but even if he did lie, the lie isn't material the, about a conversation and about actions that took place during a conversation that weren't illegal to begin with as already determined by the FBI. And oh, by the way, the guilty plea doesn't even meet barely meets one of the three standards that are required for a guilty plea to be valid in the first place. So this whole case, honestly, anybody looking at this and thinking that the, the prosecutor or that the special counsel's office has any legitimate case against Michael Flynn is nothing short of somebody who suffers from the most severe form of TDS, especially if these are people that have law degrees and supposedly have experience in the thing. Again, I don't have a law degree. I have some experience. I read a lot of legal documents. I listen to a lot of lawyers and their podcasts and all that kind of stuff. I'm not a lawyer. I would not be the best representation for you if you were ever found guilty of something and needed good representation. That said, not an entirely unintelligent fella. I can read. I take a lot of interest in these things. I have a pretty solid knowledge base on all this sort of stuff. It's pretty obvious to see that there are legal standards in place that were never met by the FBI, by the special counsel's office, by the prosecutor, and by the court. And yet, all of these actions were taken, assuming that all of these things were followed up on and done, quote, laughably, by the book. Then they get into the discussion portion of this document. We're on page 12 of 20, so I should be done pretty soon here. Uh, Based on an extensive review of this investigation, including newly discovered and disclosed information attached to the defendant's supplemental pleadings, the government has concluded that continued prosecution of Mr. Flynn would not serve the interests of justice. A couple, uh, couple sentences later, the particular circumstances 
of this case militate in favor of terminating the proceedings. Mr. Flynn pleaded guilty to making false statements that were not material to any investigation because the government does not have a substantial federal interest in penalizing a defendant for a crime that is not satisfied occurred and that it does not believe it can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. The government now moves to dismiss the criminal information under Rule 48A. Proof of a false statement to federal investigators under Section 1001A2 requires more than a lie. It requires demonstrating that such statement was such a statement was quote material end quote to the underlying investigation. Section 1001 prohibits quote knowingly and willfully making any material false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement or representation end quote in a quote manner within the jurisdiction of the executive branch of the government of the United States, end quote. So the DOJ lays it out all nice and neatly there for you, all, all the legal mumbo-jumbo and all the citations that you could possibly want. Uh, basically, like he said, it requires more than a lie. The lie itself needs to be important to an underlying investigation. The investigation itself wasn't important because it was corrupt as hell. The lie itself wasn't material because they already had the transcript and it may not have actually been a lie in accordance with not only the two people that interviewed him, possibly the original 302, but even the edited 302 that never at any point mentioned sanctions, which is supposedly one of the things that Flynn lied about. Just, I know, I know I'm being repetitive, but I need to drive this home because all of this is like, it's a big fucking spider web. And every point you're on on the spider web, it attaches to four or five other points that I need to just kind of try to drive it home. I hope many of you have, have absorbed it at this point. But it really does drive me crazy and I need to just blurt it all out. Otherwise, it's going to drive me crazy and you don't want that. Moving on to page 13, the materiality threshold thus ensures that misstatements to investigators are criminalized only when linked to the particular subject of their investigation, and it prevents law enforcement from fishing for false statements merely to manufacture jurisdiction over any statement, true or false, uttered by a private citizen or public official. In the case of Mr. Flynn, the evidence shows his statements were not, quote, material to any viable counterintelligence investigation or any investigation for that matter, initiated by the FBI. Indeed, the FBI itself had recognized that it lacked sufficient basis to sustain its initial counterintelligence investigation by seeking to close that very investigation without even an interview of Mr. Flynn. Having repeatedly found, quote, no derogatory information, end quote, on Mr. Flynn, the FBI's draft, quote, closing communication, end quote, made clear that the FBI had found no basis to, quote, predicate further investigative efforts, end quote, into whether Mr. Flynn was being directed and controlled by a foreign power, Russia, in a manner that threatened United States national security or violated FARA or its related statutes. With its counterintelligence investigation no longer justifiably predicated the communications between Mr. Flynn and Mr. Kislyak, the FBI's sole purpose for resurrecting the investigation on January 4, 2017, did not warrant either continuing that existing counterintelligence investigation or opening a new criminal investigation. The calls were entirely appropriate on their face. Mr. Flynn has never disputed that the calls were made. Indeed, Mr. Flynn, as a former director of Defense Intelligence Agency, would have readily expected that the FBI had known of the calls and told FBI Deputy Director McCabe as much. A couple sentences later, such calls are not uncommon when the incumbent public officials preparing for the incoming, their oncoming duties seek to begin and build relationships with soon-to-be counterparts. 
nor was anything said on the calls themselves to indicate any inappropriate relationship between Mr. Flynn and a foreign power. Indeed, Mr. Flynn's request that Russia avoid, quote, escalating, end quote, tensions in response to United States sanctions in an effort to mollify geopolitical tensions was consistent with him advocating for, not against, the interests of the United States. So again, the whole call was on the up and up, wholly appropriate on their face, and for that matter, whatever actions that he took in negotiating with the Russians, trying to get them to calm down a little bit and not not uh you know over retaliate not escalate the situation in response to the sanctions he was in fact advocating for not against the interests of the united states i mean you can't you can't really argue with that what would have been a good what in what way would telling the russians to like you know all right well if that's the case fire back even harder at us like that wouldn't have helped anybody nor would growing tensions between the united states and russia particularly on the precipice of a transition of power here in the united states he was in fact in his actions there talking to kislyak telling him look we're going to be in power in a month retaliate you know um in kind but don't escalate things we'll 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 talk in a month that is advocating in the best interest of the United States, and really Russia too. He's advocating in the best interest of the world in that case. Moving on, they provided no factual basis for positing that Mr. Flynn had violated FARA, nor did the calls remotely transform Mr. Flynn into a, quote, viable candidate as part of the larger crossfire hurricane investigation, end quote, into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. In any event, there was no question at the FBI as to the content of the calls. The FBI had in its possession word-for-word transcripts of the actual communications between Mr. Flynn and Mr. Kislyak, and they did provide examples here. So perhaps it is possible that the DOJ has actually seen them. Otherwise, the examples that they cite, which I don't have access to in this PDF here, could just be referencing FBI agents talking about a word-for-word transcript. So there may be a little bit of a a little bit more cloudiness on the issue of the transcripts there. But nevertheless, everything I told you about that transcript not existing is wholly irrelevant. Whether it exists, it doesn't exist, it's gotten lost one way or another, Somebody saw something that they were questioning Michael Flynn on, and that material needs to be turned over to the defense counsel. Otherwise, it's a violation of just really basic discovery, but even worse, it's a Brady disclosure because it's very likely that the that the language in that transcript would in some way, shape, or form be exculpatory evidence for Mr. Flynn that his counsel and he are being denied. So Whether the transcripts are here, there, nowhere, existed, never existed, or tattooed on Jim Comey's ass, it doesn't matter. But I'm just trying to give you the information and the theories as they come in and trying to find some appropriate spots for them as I'm running through this massive timeline. Moving on, notably at this time, FBI did not open a criminal investigation on Mr. Flynn's calls with Mr. Kislyak predicated on the Logan Act. The FBI never attempted to open a new investigation of Mr. Flynn on these grounds. Mr. Flynn's communications with the Russian ambassador implicated no crime. Later on at the bottom of the page, it starts off, Mr. Strzok and Miss Page apparently celebrated the serendipitous and amazing fact of uh, FBI's delay in formally closing out the original counterintelligence investigation, having the ability to bootstrap the calls with Kislyak onto the existing authorization obviated The need for the seventh floor, in quotes, of the FBI to predicate further investigative efforts. In doing so, the FBI sidestepped a modest but critical protection that constrains the investigative reach of law enforcement, the predication threshold for investigating American citizens. 
nor did anything about the statements by Vice President Pence or Sean Spicer in mid-January, weeks after the FBI had resolved to resurrect its dormant investigation into Mr. Flynn, provide a separate or distinct basis for an investigation. Had the FBI been deeply concerned about the disparities between what they knew had been said on the calls and the representation of Vice President Pence or Mr. Spicer, it would have sought to speak with them directly, but did not. Whether or not Mr. Flynn had been entirely candid with the future vice president or press secretary did not create a predicate for believing he had committed a crime or was beholden to a foreign power. The frail and shifting justifications for its ongoing probe of Mr. Flynn, as well as the irregular procedures that preceded his interview, suggests that the FBI was eager to interview Mr. Flynn irrespective of any underlying investigation. As is undisputed, the agents breached the common practice of arranging for the interview through the White House counsel. Deputy Director McCabe effectively discouraged Mr. Flynn from procuring counsel or even notifying the White House counsel. The interviewing agents failed to issue the common Section 1001 admonitions about lying to investigators. Nor did the FBI even notify Acting Attorney General Yates that the interview was happening until the interviewing agents were already en route to Mr. Flynn. This gambit by the FBI left Yates flabbergasted and dumbfounded. I know I've told you all this stuff already, but I'm using this as a nice summary. We've only got a couple pages left, and then we are on our way out the door here now. Uh, in light of the fact that the FBI already had these transcripts in its possession, Mr. Flynn's answers would have shed no light on whether and what he communicated with Mr. Kislyak, and those issues were immaterial to the no longer justifiably predicated counterintelligence investigation. Similarly, whether Mr. Flynn did or, quote, did not recall, end quote, communications already known by the FBI was assuredly not material. Under these circumstances, the government cannot explain, much less prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, how false statements are material to an investigation that, as explained above, seem to have been undertaken only to elicit these very false statements and thereby criminalize Mr. Flynn. All right, a couple sentences later, here's the big takeaway. This is the thing that I've said a million times at this point, but here's the DOJ's wording on it. Even if he told the truth, Mr. Flynn's statements could not have conceivably, quote, influenced, end quote, an investigation that had neither a legitimate counterintelligence nor criminal purpose. I mean, that's, that's pretty damning stuff right there. Even if he had told the truth, which is to say that anything he said in that interview was immaterial to any legitimate counterintelligence investigation or criminal investigation because any investigations that were open at the time on General Flynn were, in fact, illegitimate. Because they were, because for all the reasons that I've said for the last three hours now. All right, moving on. And for that matter, finishing up, this is page 18 of the 20-page document. We're getting close to the end here. Accordingly, a review of the facts and circumstances of this case, including newly discovered and disclosed information, indicates that Mr. Flynn's statements were never, quote, material, end quote, to any FBI investigation. And even if they could be material, the government does not believe it could prove that Mr. Flynn knowingly and willfully made a false statement beyond a reasonable doubt. Based on the facts of this case, the government is not persuaded that it could show that Mr. Flynn committed a false statement under its burden of proof. The FBI agents, quote, had the impression that Flynn was not lying or did not think he was lying, end quote. And the statements in question were not, by their nature, easily falsifiable. In his interview... Mr. Flynn offered either equivocal, quote, I don't know, 
or indirect responses or claim to not remember the matter in question, which would obviously make it very difficult to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is now my words, not the DOJ's. Um, Do you have to prove that he made a false statement beyond a reasonable doubt? And if he says, I don't know, or he doesn't give direct answers, or he claims he didn't remember, much like, you know, all of the people that were involved in the Hillary Clinton email scandal, particularly Hillary Clinton herself, I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't recall, those sorts of answers make it very, very difficult for you to find somebody guilty of making false statements to a federal investigator because they don't know. You can't prove what somebody knows unless you know that they know, and how would you know that they know, and if you knew that they knew, there'd be no point in investigating or inquiring in the first place. Anyway, moving on, combining the vague substance of the answers, the FBI's own preliminary estimation of Mr. Flynn's truthfulness, the inconsistent FBI records as to the actual questions and statements made, and Director Comey's own sentiment that the case was a, quote, close one. The evidentiary problems that have emerged create reasonable doubt as to whether Mr. Flynn knowingly and willingly lied to investigators during the interview. Mr. Flynn previously pleaded guilty to making false statements. In the government's assessment, however, he did so without full awareness of the circumstances of the newly discovered, disclosed, or declassified information as to the FBI's investigation of him. Later on, and I quote, the advocacy function of a prosecutor includes seeking exoneration and confessing error to correct an erroneous conviction, end quote, that is from Warney versus Monroe County. So in the final analysis, irrespective of Mr. Flynn's plea, prosecutors have a duty to do justice. And that is from, uh, from a couple of other cases that they cite here. Uh, federal prosecutors possess immense power to strike at citizens, not with mere individual strength, but with all the force of government itself, which is true. That's that prosecutorial harassment I was talking about under Rule 48A, which the DOJ is using here to drop the case because it has every right to and has no reason to continue along with it, being that it is not in the interest of justice or the American people. The DOJ continues referencing the ability of prosecutors to weigh the full force of government down upon any given citizen. They say, for that reason, the citizen's safety lies in the prosecutor who seeks truth and not victims, who serves the law and not factional purposes, and who approaches the task with humility, end quote. And that's just about it. And the conclusion here is that the government respectfully moves under Rule 48A to dismiss the criminal information against Mr. Flynn. And then it says, respectfully submitted, Timothy Shea, United States Attorney. And there is a spot for, hopefully, the judge to sign these documents and dismiss this case. So that's it. And that's where we find ourselves as of right now. We are waiting for the amicus briefs uh, from... John Gleason, former uh, former Judge John Gleason, who's going to argue on behalf of the prosecutor and I guess on behalf of the judge as to whether or not they need to comply with this DOJ request that I just laid out for you here. Um, what I'm expecting is, as a matter of fact, we're actually getting some pushback from the DOJ itself. So basically, Judge Sullivan needs to respond to this document that I just went through. And in doing so, he, he's requesting that Judge Gleason, you know, former Judge Gleason, step in and make these arguments first. But the DOJ has since written to Judge Sullivan saying, no, no, you need to respond to these personally. You can have your little amicus briefs. That's fine. But you need to respond to this personally. We need to know exactly why you would even feel compelled in the first place to continue this investigation based on everything that we know right now. And 
Um, and it looks like, you know, rather than this being quite the circus that Sullivan thought it was going to be, he's going to have to answer to this personally. Those amicus briefs are the amicus curie. John Gleason may very well get an opportunity to speak, but it may be too little, too late. And like I said, I think Sullivan's going to ultimately sign this without really much of any issue, um, but he is going to make a, a scene, kind of kicking and screaming, on his way out the door. But rest assured, based on everything that you've heard now over the course of the last three hours of the Right Opinion podcast, Michael Flynn has been exonerated. Whether your leftist friends want to admit it or not, he will soon be legally exonerated, and if not, he will eventually be pardoned because Donald Trump's not going to let this go down the way that it's gone down. He's been very he's been very hands-off on all of this. Yeah, yeah, they ask him questions. Yeah, he pushes back. Yeah, he pled his innocence. Yeah, the argument has been made by the leftists nonsensically so that he obstructed justice in the Mueller report uh, or in the Mueller investigation. We now know the entirety of that investigation, the entirety of the FBI investigation prior, all of it was just based on a bunch of biased political bureaucratic hacks that have been residing in our intelligence community and occasionally in even the White House, the DOJ, and other parts of our government as we've seen far reach as the Pentagon and ambassadors and treasury secretaries, like all sorts of crazy stuff. All sorts of people have all been tied up into this and all of it with one purpose in mind and that was not allowing the Trump presidency to occur, and then once that failed, not allow it to flourish, and it did everything it could. It failed miserably. Very few people are in jail. Virtually no one's in jail for anything related to the original substance of the case. Donald Trump is still appointing judges, still building the economy, still making decisions in terms of the pandemic, and I think, obviously, I think he's doing a fine job. And I hope he gets a chance to do it for another four years. And hopefully, if information like I've provided now on this part and in the previous part of the Michael Flynn saga can get circulated out there, maybe more people will be awake to the fact that Donald Trump really has drained the swamp. I know a lot of people, oh, but he's got this guy in his cabinet, he's doing this, that, and the other thing. Comey doesn't work there anymore. McCabe doesn't work there anymore. Strzok doesn't work there anymore. Brennan doesn't work there anymore. Clapper doesn't work there anymore. Rice doesn't work there anymore. Sally Yates, who's maybe just on the fringe of the swamp, but still very swampy unto herself. She doesn't work there anymore. All of these corrupt bureaucrats, these appointees, no one ever voted for these people that have all this power. They're all gone. Now, are they being replaced by the best people, the best people? Not always. Christopher Ray's a fucking joke as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I'm willing I'm willing to give him some slack because, like I said, there are some things that are going on out there. Uh, I think it's silly that the FBI is investigating itself. I think an inspector general should be stepping in and doing that. And, th- and frankly, I think that's what Horowitz should have been doing. And I don't think he really picked up the ball and ran with it so much as he just picked it up and put it right back down. The uh, The report was nice, but it, it, it wasn't enough. He didn't take a deep enough dive into exactly what's going on here. That is actually what John Durham is doing. So maybe all of that stuff will come out then. But Christopher Ray, unless he is hiding Joe Pianca like in his summer house or something like that and he's going to bring him forward to the world and be like all right guys i got the guy he's going to tell you the whole story exactly how it went down who was involved who got screwed why it was happening bada bing bada boom until that day comes christopher a is a joke one of the worst appointees trump has made and i hope he gets fired and replaced with general michael flynn or a uh, a chris christie or somebody 
who will really get in there, dig deep, and find out exactly what happened here, because as of right now, I'm led to believe Christopher Ray is just going to do everything he can to cover up all this sort of stuff. He hasn't submitted the original 302, he hasn't provided the transcripts, he hasn't provided the recordings. All of the, all of the disclosures that have come out have been a result of acting Director of National Intelligence Richard Grinnell, who is above the FBI, but basically had to go around all of the FBI and all that sort of, and all the other bureaucracies and all the other intelligence communities being that he overrides all of them in order to get this truth out to the American people. All of this stuff was on file and sitting around and not being distributed, not being declassified, not being given over to the defense counsel. All of this stuff was on file while Christopher Ray is the director of the FBI. So is he really interested in reforming the FBI or is he interested in covering it up and protecting our institutions, which frankly don't merit protecting anymore? It's quite clear we need protection from our institutions. So uh, when you know when you got President Barack Obama, and this is actually the last part of the show here, is that the, mostly because this is a loose end, I can't quite seem to place anywhere in the timeline necessarily. Obviously, it took place most recently, which is why it's at the bottom of the timeline. But you've got this recent call that leaked this conversation with Obama, and he's talking about there is no precedent that somebody who's been charged with perjury getting off scot-free. That's the kind of stuff where you begin to get worried. The basic, not just institutional norms, but your basic understanding of the rule of law is at risk. And, and that's what he said. I mean, obviously that's not true. It's also not true that Flynn was charged with perjury. He wasn't charged with perjury. He wasn't under oath. He wasn't on the stand when he supposedly lied. He was being investigated by investigators for the FBI. Or, frankly, if he's under investigation, supposed to tell him that if he lies, it could be a crime. They didn't. They're supposed to show him the transcript. They didn't. They're supposed to inform White House counsel. They didn't. They're supposed to have an actual predicate for the investigation to begin with. They didn't. So this whole notion that we're, we need to protect our institutional norms, the fuck out of here, Barry. Go home. Go back to your Mai Tais and Richard Branson. Or, you know what, if you're so brazen about this, instead of having your buddy Michael Isakov leak a conversation, which is bullshit, it wasn't leaked, it was designed to be released, which is very different than a leak. If you're so, you know, you want to talk about this, we got a nice seat for you. I'm sure the Senate Intelligence Committee has got plenty of questions for you if you're willing to put up your right hand and swear to it. But uh, I have a feeling you probably won't do that. And by the way, don't you have a law degree? Like, you know the difference between perjury and U.S. Criminal Code 1001. You know how I know that? Because I know that, and I don't have a fucking law degree. This guy's a joke. He was the most incompetent, corrupt president in the history of the United States. And one day, maybe, hopefully... His, his legacy or whatever is left of it that Donald Trump hasn't completely set on fire um, will all come crashing down and hurt inside for my second Hulk Hogan reference of the week. I don't think I did one last week, so I got two in this week. Um, but Obama's just, he's mad, bro. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to. He got caught in all this. And luckily, he's got a fully complicit media and an army of, you know, at least 60 plus million sheep that are willing to hop on Twitter and defend every word, you know, until the day that he dies or the day that they die or whatever comes first. He is the golden calf. He is the exalted one. He is Barack Hussein Obama. And God forbid you should ever say anything bad about him. You are a racist. So after, um, you know, after these last two episodes of doing nothing but ragging on him and his administration, I suppose I'm like some sort of, I don't know, Grand Poobah, Grand Wizard, like All Father of Asgard or something. I don't know. I don't know what it makes me, but I'm sure that if if somehow a leftist could have actually struggled through all four hours of all of this truth that they're just hearing for the first time, they probably would assume I'm some terrible, terrible human being 
uh, akin to, uh, I don't know, Alex Jones or Charles Manson, because in their minds, those two things are in the same level, which is just bizarre. But they don't live on this earth, folks. They live on an alternate reality, the alternate reality where Hillary Clinton's the president, Donald Trump's in prison, and they've built a thousand-foot statue in the middle of the country of Barack Obama made out of solid gold that can be seen from either coast uh, while riding, of course, your unicorn. So that's that. That's all I got for you. This is part two of Michael Flynn. This is going to be part of a larger Spygate anthology that one day I'll like clip together and make one big thing, I guess, that I can re- release as its own thing somewhere down the road. But um, this has been the Michael Flynn saga. It's not over yet. Judge Sullivan's still got to have his briefings, and he's got to sign off on this, and the DOJ have to formally drop the charges, which I believe all that will happen you know, over the course of the next couple of weeks. But this case, through all the disclosures, the declassifications, and fucking Sidney Powell, man, God bless her, um, we've we've found out a lot of it, and it really exposed not just the Michael Flynn case, but really the the Russia probe as a whole, and it calls into question every little detail of that entire investigation. Because I mean, look at this, man! Like, look what they did to a three-star general. Imagine what they were getting away with with Papadopoulos, with Page, with Manafort. These are not guys that had tremendous public standing and we're not big deals and don't have the connections and the knowledge that a guy like Flynn had all of this is is you know hopefully comes crumbling down like a house of cards eventually and uh hopefully we're all there to to watch it burn and to laugh and hopefully some justice is done and some of these people are punished for the things that they did particularly to people like Michael Flynn who are nothing short of American heroes and patriots and unfortunately were dragged through the mud by people who just don't have America's best interest at heart. They only had their own reputations, their own legacies, and the deluded notion that Donald Trump as a president of the United States was going to somehow ruin everything, which it probably was for them. It was going to ruin their reputations. I say to people all the time, if Barack Obama was such a great president, how did we end up with Donald Trump? You would think if he was so great, they would have went, you know, we, we as a country would have went with the candidate that was much more like him. We went with the candidate that was not only the opposite of him, but that vowed to eviscerate everything he ever stood for. So if Barack Obama was such a great president, how did we end up with Donald Trump? Same thing with if Donald Trump is such an idiot, how is he an evil genius who pulled off the collusion hoax? And if Donald Trump is such an idiot, how is he he keeps running circles around you, your media buddies, and the entire political establishment? No, not just the Democrats. We all saw what he did to the to the Republicans in the in the primary. It wasn't pretty. It, some could say it was a murder scene, and Ted Cruz's father probably would agree. Anyway, that's just about it. It's all we got on this topic for now. Anyway, if anything else comes out, it'll come you know, back as a, as a part three, or maybe I'll tie in some of the Flynn information to a future episode. I'm planning on doing other episodes on Paige, Papadopoulos, Manafort, maybe Stone, and then kind of doing one where... I go through all of the characters, some of the more peripheral people, the Evelyn Farkas's, the Susan Rice's, the Joseph Mifsuds, the Joseph Piancas, and kind of touching on some of these players that you don't hear so much about on the news. And uh, and then kind of just, you know, just in, in the effort of providing as much and as, as, you know, as much information as I possibly can in as neat a form as I possibly can. This was the Michael Flynn part one and part two. Stay tuned to the right for more episodes like this. I have another episode coming out next week. It's going to be a little change of course. We're going to go back to coronavirus stuff. It's going to be the war on hydroxychloroquine. Many of you are probably sick to high hell of hearing about this drug, but Trump pushed it. 
it may work. I'll give you my assessment. I'll give you as much of the research as I can provide. But the media will not allow him to get a win on anything. And this one in particular is something that is really stuck in their craw. And they're on a full-fledged effort to try to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't get a win. Especially in terms of a potential therapeutic. Because as soon as we have a therapeutic for this drug that might work or some combination of therapeutics for this drug that might work, we could go back to resuming life as normal. We can assume that fatalities will come down to a minimum, if not altogether eliminate them for the less vulnerable populations that are out there. The more vulnerable populations are what they are. They're vulnerable. Eventually, I think we're going to run out of them, right? I mean, not not to make light of it, but at a certain point, everybody who's older and vulnerable that could have gotten this will have gotten it, and those that will have died will have died, and those that will have lived will hopefully now be immune, and hopefully we can all press forward as a society. But we'll talk about more of that next week on The Right Opinion. I hope you guys... You know, it's Memorial Day. Uh, stupid me. I always forget about, uh, really, all holidays that don't involve me buying gifts or whatever. But um, this one, it's Memorial Day. And yeah, here in the U.S., it's kind of turned into like 4th of July, Junior. Everybody does all the same shit. There's fireworks, there's burgers, there's dogs, there's beer. And that's harder to do, obviously, now. Uh, some of the restrictions are being opened up to allow some of that in some states. But obviously, everybody's still a little weary of one another and all that kind of stuff. But look... It's Memorial Day. We lost millions, thousands, millions, whatever. We've lost millions of people who have fought for our freedom in one shape, way, shape, or form, whether they died in battle or they died of old age. They were there. They fought for us, and we, we love them, and, and we should appreciate them. And we should appreciate them now more than ever. They fought to protect us from the type of stuff that the FBI did to General Flynn. They fought to protect us from the type of stuff that Governor Whitmer is doing to the people of Michigan in restricting your freedoms in a tyrannical governmental form. Same thing was done to Flynn and Papadopoulos and Page and Manafort and Stone and even Michael Cohen's dumbass. All of these people were targets of an overreaching, tyrannical FBI bureaucracy that decided to take it upon themselves to rewrite the Constitution, or at least to altogether ignore the parts that matter and to press forward in trying everything they conceivably could do to try to bring down Michael Flynn and Donald Trump and all the other people that I named. People have fought and died for our protections that we, Flynn, Trump, everybody in Michigan, that we're entitled to, not because we earned them, but because of the men and women who died to defend and protect and for that matter, win those rights going all the way back to the revolution. So, I mean, hats off to all of our all, all of our our fallen brothers and soldiers. Hats off to our vets in general. I know Veterans Day is like another thing unto itself, but I mean, it's all one and the same. You guys put yourself at as much risk as they did. They just unfortunately didn't see the other end of it. You guys did, but I know bars aren't open and stuff, but when they are, um, you see a guy in military uniform or a guy with a hat or whatever it is, buy him a drink, say thank you, shake his hand, her hand, whatever it is. We owe these people a lot. We owe them more than we'll ever really give them. Our government isn't always kind to them. They don't always get all the supports and the benefits that they need and they deserve and they've earned, but it doesn't cost you anything to say thank you. And I, and I think that's something that we should all do. I try to do it. I see somebody wearing a hat or, you know, an old timer wearing his old jacket or whatever it is. Hey man, Thank you very much for your service. I mean, it's it sounds empty, it sounds meaningless, but if you mean it and you're making eye contact and you say it and you shake their hand, they know you mean it. They know when you mean it and when you don't mean it. And if you mean it, say it because 
there are people out there who aren't saying it often enough. So happy Memorial Day weekend, I guess, to everybody. Hope you guys are having a fun and safe time. And thank you for tuning in. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, Parlor. Instagram and Minds. That's at Right Opinion Pod. You can also email the show if you'd like. The email address is the Right Opinion Pod at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe at the Right or iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher. Check out hackerhameen.podbean.com and ratsaladreview.com. And hey, just follow the news. You know, follow me on Twitter. More importantly, I'm constantly retweeting. I've got a list. I don't know if you guys can view my lists on my Twitter, but I've got one called Not Fake News that has a lot of people that provide information around this case. Lee Smith and Chuck Ross and Molly Hemingway and Sarah Carter and John Solomon and uh, Dan Bongino and just so many. Um, I'm, I'm following these people. There's also a lot of really good Twitter journalists that have provided a lot of context here. The Last Refuge, Technofog. Undercover Huber, most of them are on my not fake news list on Twitter. And I think you're able to like either go in and follow it yourself, or you could certainly see the people I have on it and kind of pick and choose and make your own list if you'd like. But I'd recommend that because that keeps me super informed. Um, and it keeps me on the on the most up-to-date information as it's coming in, particularly in regards to these cases. Because like, look, I love this stuff. I like to go out of my way to read this stuff, but I am not reading like court documents as they come out. I need somebody to kind of give me an interpretation or an idea for what I'm looking at. And then, then I can look at the documents. All right. Okay. This is what I'm seeing. This is what this is about. This is why this was released. I need that little bit of context to come before and sometimes even some explanations afterwards. Cause again, I'm not a lawyer, but I am able to absorb information when it's provided to me. And those people have been instrumental in providing information to me that I hopefully am passing along to you. Hopefully I'm giving you stuff that's new. But um, it is at this point in the broadcast that I am obligated to remind you that opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, but this asshole has the right opinion right here on the Right Opinion Podcast. I'll talk to you guys next time. Peace! Boo.